Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to day two of our very special programming for the American Council of the Blind of New York and uh, for our 50th anniversary convention. Uh, I want to take a little bit of time to thank our sponsors for helping us out during our two days of programming. Our sponsors are Spectrum, uh, and uh, ORCAM, uh, the Northeastern Association of the Blind, and CAPFI, uh, and Newsreel Magazine, uh, Behind Our Eyes, and many, uh, a few others uh, that we'll mention later on in the programming. Uh, so uh, without further ado, we are gonna go ahead with the programming for, uh, for guide dog users of, um, guide dog, guide dog users of the Empire State. And uh, today we have uh, Marlene Krimen, who is uh, a handler for the um, New York Federation of Search and Rescue Teams. And uh, also uh, one, of her, um, one of her colleagues, uh, Dan Groff, they're going to uh, give us a little bit of uh, a bird's eye view or maybe a dog's eye view of, uh, of what it's like to work with search and rescue dogs and some personal stories. And then we're gonna take some questions. So Marlene, um, thank you. And um, you have the floor. Thank you and good morning conference attendees. So I'm gonna talk this morning about search and rescue dogs. If you are able to watch via the video presentation, you might see a blue circle on the left and a yellow triangle on the right. The blue circle is actually the emblem for my personal team, Niagara Frontier Search and Rescue. Um, both Dan and I are members of that team that team covers the eight counties of Western New York. The emblem on the right, the yellow triangle, is for the New York State Federation of Search and Rescue Teams. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but that basically is a statewide um, collaboration of lots of different search and rescue teams all over New York State. So today I'm planning to briefly describe search and rescue dogs. I'll explain the five different canine disciplines in the New York State Federation of Search and Rescue. I'll provide a overview of how search and rescue dogs find lost people. I'll discuss some of the similarities and differences between search and rescue dogs and service dogs. And then hopefully Dan and I will be able to answer any questions you may have. Again, you'll see that triangle, the yellow triangle up at the top, and that is the emblem for the New York State Federation of Search and Rescue Teams. So that federation consists of about 25 wilderness search and rescue teams from all over New York State. All search and rescue teams here in New York are not for profit. We're 5013 organizations. We're made up completely of volunteers. None of us ever receives any money for going on a search or working our dogs. The goal of the Federation and all search and rescue is really to find missing persons and save lives. 
about half of those 25 teams that make up the Federation have at least a small canine component to them. So not all search and rescue teams have canine teams. My particular team is a pretty large search and rescue team. Since we cover eight counties of Western New York, we have about 45 members, but there are only five canine teams on my particular team. So canine is just a small part of search and rescue here in New York State. So what is a search and rescue dog? Well, search and rescue dogs are trained to find missing people. SAR dogs can save lives. Sometimes people misuse terminology. I'm sure this happens all the time with regard to service, service dogs, assistance dogs. So sometimes you might hear people say they have a search dog, but that dog does nose work or other types of detection. And just to help clear up some of the terminology, detection dogs can be trained to find any particular scent, drugs, bombs, bed bugs. A lot of police canines are detection dogs. If somebody actually has a search dog, they're only looking for human scent. So search dogs only find people. Most search and rescue dogs are really only responsible for finding the lost individual, the search part of search and rescue. The human SAR personnel are then responsible for the actual rescue. Now in other parts of the world, there are dogs that help perform rescues, but here in New York State, our search and rescue dogs are just finding the individuals and it's up to the human search and rescue personnel to actually get that person to safety. There are many different types of search and rescue dogs for different types of environments and situations, just like there are different types of assistance dogs. So not all search and rescue dogs perform the exact same duties. Here in New York State, as part of that federation, we have different types of canine resources. They primarily fall into three categories. The air scent dogs find any human in their assigned area. They primarily work by smelling the air, so they have their nose up. They're searching for scent. Trailing dogs find a specific human and or articles handled by that human. They primarily work by smelling the ground, so you'll see them with their nose down. They're responsible for matching and following scent. And then we have human remains detection dogs. Those canines locate deceased individuals by detecting scent of human decomposition in the air, on the ground, and even in and under water. So the New York State Federation of Search and Rescue has five different canine disciplines. I know I just said three, but what happens is human remains detection is further broken down. So we have the wilderness air scent, which is live find, but they find generic human scent, anybody in a wilderness area. We have wilderness trailing. They're also 
finding live humans, but they're scent specific. They're only looking for the particular human that's missing. Then we have human remains detection on land, human remains detection crime scene, and human remains detection water recovery. And I'll go into a brief description of each of those different five disciplines. There are lots of other types of search and rescue dogs that are not part of that New York State Federation. So there are urban search and rescue dogs, dogs that work disasters, avalanches, et cetera. So the first type is the wilderness air scent, sometimes referred to as live find dogs. These dogs often work independently of their handlers, off leash, looking to find anyone that might be in their search area. They can cover large areas quickly and will indicate on any person in their assigned area, even if it's not the subject. So they might accidentally find somebody else who is out searching for that person. Once the dog finds someone in their area, they're trained to come back to the handler to let them know they found someone, usually with a hit or a bark indication. Then the dog continues to run back and forth between the subject and the handler, sort of like ping pong, until the handler's at the same location as a lost person. It's really just a giant game of hide and seek, but can make the difference between life and death. The wilderness trailing dogs also are used to find people that are still alive. These dogs usually work in a harness on a long 20 to 40 foot line. So the handler's at the other end of that long leash. They're the only canine resource that scent discriminate. Once the dog is given a scent article belonging to the missing person, they check along the ground looking for a scent match. They ignore other human scent any scent that's not matching the subjects, and they can determine the direction of travel by following the missing person's scent trail. They focus primarily on the skin rafts that are on the ground and following the general path of the subject, although it can be offset due to wind and other environmental influences. The human remains detection wilderness recovery dogs work similar to the live find air scenting dogs. They generally work off leash and are looking for any deceased human in their assigned area. The dogs do know the difference between the smell of an animal decomposing and that of a human. These teams are usually deployed to an area where the subject is assumed to be deceased in a large wilderness location. We also have human remains detection crime scene. These dogs typically work smaller areas, either on or off leash to find small amounts of human remains or residual scent, possibly where a body once was. Cadaver dogs may be used to search buildings and other structures and even to check vehicles. They can also be used to locate evidence in criminal, criminal investigations, such as weapons, clothing, and other articles. Human remains detection water recovery. These teams are usually deployed when the subject is assumed to be deceased in or around water. 
The dogs can work from the shoreline or from small boats to identify locations where victims may have drowned. The scent of the human rises to the surface of the water via gases and other scent particles. Once a dog alerts from a boat, divers are sent into the area to recover the body. This can save valuable time and limit the danger to rescue divers. Here in Western New York, um, Niagara Frontier Search and Rescue, actually our canine teams go on more water recoveries than anything else. Um, because of our location, we have Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and the Niagara River. And unfortunately, every year, there are individuals who, who lose their lives in the water around Western New York. And so that is something our canine team regularly responds to, unfortunately. So as far as the canine capabilities, search dogs are primarily relying on scent to find the lost individual. Dogs have up to 250 million scent receptors compared to humans who only have about 5 million. One search dog team can cover an area 100 to 160 acres in about four hours. You would need 30 to 40 human searchers in eight hours to do that without any canine teams assisting. So they're very, very fast and efficient. Dogs can easily pick up on the scent of a live person from over a quarter mile away. Trailing dogs can follow a scent trail that is several days old in ideal conditions. Dogs can smell humans buried in 15 feet of snow or under 30 feet of water. And human remains detection dogs can locate buried remains from hundreds of years ago. In addition to their amazing sense of smell, dogs also have superior hearing and night vision compared to humans. Our search dogs work very, very well at night. So canine search strategy is based on scent theory. And when we're talking about human scent, we're primarily talking about skin rafts. So if you were to brush your hand across your arm, there would be different skin rafts being shed. Each human sheds about 40,000 rafts of skin per minute. About one third of those skin rafts fall to the ground and two thirds of them become airborne. The airborne scent expands from the source in a cone shape or scent cone, and air scent dogs follow that scent cone to its source. The goal is to put the dog in the best possible position, given the specific circumstances, to pick up on the skin rafts and other odors of the missing person. This usually means starting on the downwind side of the area. The dog runs perpendicular to the wind back and forth. If the dog picks up on the smell of a human, it will naturally turn into the wind, zigzag back and forth until it hits the edge of the scent plume, then turn back. The dog continues to work toward the greatest concentration of human scent until it eventually locates the person or the strongest scent pool. If a person is located, the dog will run back to the handler to let them know. 
many factors such as the type of terrain, time of day, weather, and wind affect how human scent moves through an area. It's up to the handler to determine the best search strategy given the environment that the canine team is working in. If we had an ideal weather conditions with a nice wind coming out of the north and we had a perfect square as our assignment, which never happens in real life. So assume somebody is missing and they're in the northern part of our little search block. So imagine a square. The missing individual is way to the north, but within that square, the wind is coming out of the north. We would start the dog on the southern side of that search area and we would work back and forth east-west passes. As soon as that dog is close enough to that person to pick up on the scent, the dog is going to turn and go directly into that uh, to the human and you'll see them zigzag back and forth working that scent plume. Once they locate the strongest human scent, which is the subject, the dog will come back to find the handler, jump up or bark to let the handler know they found somebody and then go back to the subject and the dog will go back and forth, sometimes several times before the handler is actually at the subject. The game is not over until everybody's in the same spot. So what makes a good search dog? Well, the most common breeds for wilderness search and rescue here in New York State are Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and German Shepherds. Although in fairness, many other breeds can work well too. We like the larger double-coated dogs because of the weather conditions here in Western New York and New York State. We get snow, so you usually don't want a dog that is really low to the ground because they're going to have a hard time maneuvering through snow. Generally, we like the double coat on the dog. It helps provide some insulation. So we're usually looking for a medium to larger size dog that's agile with good stamina. In other parts of the country where the weather conditions and terrain are different, or for urban search and rescue, they will often use much smaller dogs. So it's different in different places. But here in New York, um, the primary, primary breeds of search dogs are retrievers and shepherds. The dog needs to be intelligent, independent, confident, and highly motivated. Search dogs need to have a high hunt, food, and toy drive. And just like service animals, the dog needs to be environmentally sound and well socialized. So how are search and rescue dogs and service dogs similar? Well, both are considered working dogs with very important jobs. So the same etiquette applies to both when you see a search dog working that has their search vest on that you would not of course go up and pet that dog, talk to that dog or feed that dog just the same way you would with a, a service dog. Both search and rescue dogs and service dogs can save lives. 
So whether it's finding a lost person or guiding their handler through everyday obstacles, warning of danger or alerting to medical problems, both can be a matter of life and death. There are a lot of similar breeds used for both search and rescue and service dogs, especially guide dogs who tend to be retrievers, um, golden retrievers or Labrador retrievers. Same thing with search and rescue. We have a lot of retrievers and also shepherds. Both search and rescue dogs and service dogs have many similar personality traits, intelligence. They need to be loyal, hardworking, confident and adaptable. Both undergo extensive training. It usually takes at least two years to train a dog for search and rescue and can cost anywhere between, you know, 5,000 and, and $20,000 to train them. For service animals, depending upon their specialty, again, you're looking at at least two years of training and sometimes I, I looked it up and I was actually quite surprised by how, how much it costs to train a guide dog. Um, so some of the sources I looked at said between forty dollars and $60,000 per dog. That's a lot of investment and a lot of training. Of course, it's not just about the dog. Search dogs and service dogs are part of a canine team. So the relationship with their primary human is key. Both the dog and the human need to be able to communicate with each other and trust one another. Both search and rescue dogs and service dogs tend to start their training as puppies. Because the training can be a matter of life and death, um, most of us prefer to start with puppies. Um, you can take an older dog and teach them to be a search dog, but when you're investing so much time, effort, and money, and their career isn't necessarily uh, very long for some working dogs, a lot of times it's, it's better off to just kind of start with puppies. So how are search and rescue dogs and service dogs different? Well, search and rescue dogs are not considered service animals. Search dogs do not have access to public locations the way that guide dogs would. Obviously, you know, the ADA protects um, service dogs so that they can go everywhere that the person goes. That's not the same case with search and rescue dogs. Generally, search and rescue dogs are given access for official business and are usually allowed um, to fly on planes or stay in hotels that are not dog friendly if they're working or training. Who they assist is very different. Search and rescue dogs are actually trained to find strangers. So they're trying to save the life of somebody that they've never met before. Whereas service dogs are assisting their own special human, their own handler that they've been bonded with for some period of time. You also never know when or where you're gonna get a call as a search and rescue dog handler. 
how often do they do their jobs? Well, some search and rescue dogs may only go on a few searches per year. Most service dogs are performing their duties daily. Who the dogs are trained by. Search and rescue dogs are chosen and trained by their own individual handlers. So most handlers who are going to start with a puppy get the puppy directly from the breeder. And in many cases, either the breeder chooses the puppy or the handler chooses the puppy with the breeder. And all of the training is done with the handler. Service dogs are usually formally trained by an organization and puppy raisers and then matched with their handler. There are some personality differences. Search and rescue dogs should have an excess of energy and lots of hunt and toy drive. Whereas, of course, the service dogs need to be calm, ignore toys and other distractions, and have really high self-control. It is possible to take a dog who washes out of service dog training and teach them to be a search and rescue dog. And that is exactly what happened with my teammate and fellow canine handler, Dan Gruff, and his dog, Oakland, who is a Labrador retriever, um, golden retriever mix. So if Dan is here, he could certainly tell his story of how he acquired Oakland and the success he's had with the dog now as a, as a search dog. Okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. I can hear you, Dan. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I have very little reception, and I'm not sure how well it's working here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, let's see. It was 19 or 19? Oh, 2014. Um, I got a message from a friend of mine who's a search and rescue handler, canine handler in Pennsylvania. She had previously gotten her dog from uh, called Canine Companion for Independence, um, which is a service dog organization uh, for people um, who are in wheelchairs, primarily um, for certain help people in wheelchairs. Um, and like Marlene said, some of them, uh, they're a little bit too high drive for the program, so they wash out. And um, she had gotten her dog, um, I think it was 2009 from there. And so she was kind of been a contact from, for them to look for search and rescue handlers for potential dogs. So in uh, 2014, I think it was, um, she sent me a message with a link, you know, for the people there about uh, this dog they had who made it through a lot of their training, but uh, failed their, I, guess they call it, I don't know if they call it a fish to the tennis ball test. Um, he didn't want to leave tennis balls alone and he would leave the person who's in the wheelchair to go chase tennis balls whenever they roll them past or whatever so uh so i got in touch with them and drove from where i live near rochester new york down there to check him out and uh he seemed pretty suitable um so i ended up uh taking him home and uh he's been been pretty really good he's certified in uh land cadaver and um water currently um, and we've done some live air scent stuff too. You know. so, uh, 
So he's uh, eight years old now, and um, yeah, he's been great. He's a and he's for a search dog, he's pretty mellow. Around the house, he's just Mr. Mellow, and uh, when we get out in the field, he he's just like a light switch goes off, and he just takes off and like loves to work. I don't know. Any, anything else you need to know about Oki? He is a great dog, and he's really still in phenomenal shape and has great energy for his age. You would never know that he's uh, he's eight years old. Yeah, I was surprised how far he got through their program um, before they realized he wasn't going to work out. Because when I got him, he he already knew how to uh, turn on and off light switches and open up cupboards and close, you know, close off or drawers, you know, for people and uh, things like that. And uh, one of the rewards. Uh, I use with the dog is uh, to play with a, a when he finds what he's looking for, whether it's a person or scent material. Um, and I like to have people play tug with him as well as fetch. And uh, they actually had a tug demand because they were tossing on his drawers and held a tug. So it was pretty easy to transfer that um, to playing with a human for a reward. So that was nice. And being a lab, he really likes the water a lot. So, uh, you know, working uh, whether from a boat or shoreline for uh, water recovery uh, was pretty natural for him. Uh, he really likes that. So, um, where I currently am is not with Oakland, but with my German Shepherd, who's a trailing dog. She, Marlene mentioned about the trailing. I'm at that's where I am now is at a seminar um, with a bunch of people from all over the country to, you know, do some training in um, the trailing part of search and rescue. Dan, how many dogs do you have? Uh, I have two right now. Um, Oakland, the, the yellow lab uh, and Archer, who's the, uh, he's my younger shepherd. He's uh, learning trailing, uh, but I've had, three, four other dogs throughout my search and rescue career, um, labs or another shepherd and a Belgian Malinois. Um, I always seem to bounce back and forth between the floppy ears and the pointy ear dog. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that with, with, uh, you know, guide dogs, you know, we're either, um, really, um, attached to our floppy eared ones or our pointies. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Dan, if I could ask you another question, uh, this is Annie again. How did you get yeah. started in search and rescue? Oh boy, it was I think like 1994. Um, we just gotten our first dog, a German Shepherd, who wasn't really like a working line dog or anything, and I just. Um, it seemed I read some articles about it, and I happened to, you know, we got him, and I thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to do, you know. And, um, the local team that I belonged to at the time in Rochester, 
had their meetings in the building where I worked out of. And I saw them coming in. I was working in the evening. And I happened to run into them, and uh, they started telling me about their team. And so I just uh, ran the team after that, and uh, I went from there. Well, 26 years Wow. Yes, Dan's been doing this a long time. I got interested time. in more just the, the canine aspect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Ed, this is Annie again. Marlene, um, how did you get started? Well, I would, I guess, sort of a, a different way that I got involved. Um, I actually have always been an outdoorsy person. I like hiking and, and kayaking and, and doing a lot of things outside. And when my children were young, they would do those things with me. And um, as my children got older, they were not interested in doing those sorts of things with me. My husband had a job where he traveled a lot and was gone a lot. Um, and so I was actually looking for a hobby for myself. And so I got involved with search and rescue initially as a human searcher. And it was only after I joined the team and learned about search and rescue myself that I started getting interested into the dog side of it. I had always grown okay. up with animals. I grew up with horses. My family always had different dogs and I had a family, you know, I had a Labrador retriever as a family pet at the time, but, um, but I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to pursue becoming a canine handler for search and rescue. And so I, um, you know, and after I completed all of my human search and rescue training and went through an academy, I started going out with the canine team, just volunteering to hide for them and letting their dogs find me. And I did that for about a year before I got my first search dog. So my, my current operational search dog is a five-year-old black lab. And I just acquired a shepherd this summer who is now in training, um, eventually will be her replacement. Um, a lot of times for the live find dogs, depending upon, you know, how they're doing health wise, by the time they're seven or eight, we, you know, we often start looking for a replacement. So, so I actually have um, two labs at home and a puppy shepherd. Oh boy, it must keep you busy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot of fun um, and very rewarding. And, you know, I just want to mention that for canine search and rescue, the handlers are paying for all of their dogs, you know, health concerns, all of the training, everything that we do, we're paying out of pocket. It's a very expensive hobby. It's a very, um, you know, it, it, overtakes certain aspects of your life. It's a big commitment, honestly, from your entire family, from my husband and mm -hmm. children to make the sacrifice that I'm going to be spending this amount of time traveling, this amount of money on this. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that sacrifice. Sounds like it's a calling more than it's a hobby. It sounds like it's something yeah. that you just feel you need, the need, is, you know, you feel compelled to do it. And it's a purpose. A drive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, if, if you don't mind, uh, could we open to questions at this point? Are you done? I just want to, cause I'm <laughs> sure. I don't want to monopolize the questions. <laughs> okay. So, um, so if anybody, uh, has questions, please raise your hand. Um, yes. Hi, this is Lynn. Uh, and to raise your hand, first of all, Annie, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. All right. To raise your hand on a computer, it is Alt-Y. On a Mac, it is Option-Y. On a phone, it is Star-9. And on your iPhone, or it's in the middle, on the, on, on, on the bottom of your, your home screen. So let's see if we have any questions. Okay. Okay. Roseanne, you may now unmute. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a, a, a question. I think it's really fascinating for the work that you do. It's incredible. And I think it's, you know, it's life saving for people that have gotten lost and what that is just awesome. Um, do you work hand in hand with a, like the state police department or the military? I mean, how do you connect or how do they connect with you when needed to find someone or to do a search and rescue? Well, thank you. That's a great question. So our particular team, Niagara Frontier Search and Rescue, um, our director is a member of the Erie County Sheriff's Office. So we have a very good relationship with our local law enforcement, at least within this county, um, and they do call us very regularly. It is an ongoing effort to make sure that you maintain the relationships with the different law enforcement agencies. Um, there's high turnover sometimes in certain positions. So maybe, you know, we tend to work under the, the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation. So when there's a large wilderness search, usually the DEC comes in and the DEC understands and recognizes what the New York State, or New York State Federation of Search and Rescue can do and will call us in. Um, so for the larger searches, you know, we're usually activated. The smaller, more local searches, sometimes local law enforcement is not even aware of what resources are available to them. And, and it, there's never any cost whatsoever in having us come out and the fact that we're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year round. Um, so part of what we like to do is continue to do outreach with local law enforcement, letting them know, hey, we're here. Um, sometimes we do have joint trainings and it's up to those individual teams to make sure that their local agencies are aware of them. That is really awesome. Um, and then are they, um, in terms of training them, I would imagine most of it's treat and reward kind of training. Uh, but how do you train them for the various different scents? Like you were saying, some dogs will only pick up a certain scent that you've given them before they go out to do their search. How do you train them individually to pick up whatever it is that you're looking for? That's awesome that they're that sensitive. 
Dan, this sounds like one for you with the scent-specific trailing dog. Dana, you're still around? Hello. Oh, there he is. There he is. Hello. Yeah, sorry. Could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. I had a little problem with my phone here. Yeah, I was asking how the dogs are trained for specific scents. Like some dogs are trained to pick up one particular thing that you want them to look for. Other dogs will look for other scents. Right. Um, how well, do you train them to pick yeah, up that one scent? Uh, well, I just I always start them with uh, kind of how we work the advanced dogs, but just start with a scent article, like someone's hat or something that they've worn, or uh, we'll use uh, like a 4x4 gauze, you know, for first aid. It's basically sterile. Have them touch it wipe it down on their body or whatever and then um put it in a ziploc bag is what i usually do um and then just do simple problems just uh you know have could have the person run away and then present the scent article to the dog um they sniff it and then eventually you know if they find just that person or where that person walked to get to a point a to point b um and they're rewarded for finding that person um eventually the two together or sometimes we'll just have a like, person will be wearing a sweatshirt we set that on the ground have the dog come over lay down next to the sweatshirt tell them to check it out and then uh you know go to go find the, the person they just saw run away or something really small problem you set it up so the dog um can't get it wrong and gets rewarded for that uh, and then eventually when the dog seems to be getting the game, getting, you know, learning the base, we might uh, have two people go out, one is the subject, and um, have them split their trail, one go left, one go right. And if you know, as a handler, you know that the person you're looking for went left. Okay, um, well, since... Uh... Mr. Groff has left the meeting probably because of connection issues. We do have another question. Uh, Nancy Murray, you may unmute. Yeah, my question is in between when you're not out in the field doing the actual rescue, how much training do you have to continue doing in between those times? And what is your reward given to the dogs? Both great questions. So for um, the, the standard for search and rescue is about 16 training hours per month. So our particular team trains weekly. So every, usually Sunday, um, we get together and we train for four to six hours. So we train weekly. A lot of us do smaller problems with our dogs during the week, depending upon where they're at in their training. Um, and it is, it's all positive reinforcement. Um, we tend to use more toy reward than food reward. So food is part of it, but a lot of us prefer to switch over to a toy at some point. Um, it's the interaction with the subject that they're finding 
that becomes sort of the whole reward to the to the game the game of you know find them um and you know some dogs are more in, interested in the food and we'll start with that but once the dogs are more mature we, we tend to kind of switch over to the toy reward the toy kind of gets their drive really high and that's something that we like for search and rescue that would not necessarily be appropriate for you know other types of of service dogs but i would say the the toy and the play and the interaction um, are really what the dog is working for it's a game to the dog and again it starts really small you know, if we're doing live find, it's hide and seek in a really small area. And then it just gets bigger, 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 bigger until the dog is able to do, you know, a hundred acre problem. Um, if the dog is being trained specifically for <clears throat> human remains detection, a lot of times um, we start in just really small indoor areas and we're teaching the dog to if every time they go to that smell, the smell of human decomposition, um, we usually just click and reward as soon as their nose goes to that particular odor. And we immediately start putting out animal remains and food distractors and the dog never gets a reward for going to the animal or the food scent. They only get rewarded when they go to the human scent. And again, you know, you start really small in very controlled settings and the game just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the dog is able to work in a large wilderness area off leash, um, searching for that scent on their own. Thank you. Okay. Um, it looks like we don't have any more questions at this point. Um, this is Annie. I, I have some questions. <laughs> Uh, we, okay, so guide dogs, we have our gear. We have our harness, our leash, um, our collars. Uh, uh, we have booties. <laughs> so what, what's your typical dog gear? <laughs> well, it'll depend again on the specialty. So for the trailing dogs, they're, you know, working in a harness on a long 20 to 40 foot lead. Mm -hmm. um, I work my live find air scenting dog in a harness. We usually do have harnesses on the dogs that are off leash. Um, first of all, it identifies the dog as a search dog. So it usually mm -hmm. does say search dog on there. We also put bells on the dogs and lights on the dogs. If they're working at night, we can see the light. The bell is very useful for knowing exactly where our canine is in relationship to ourselves. Because remember, our dogs are often working off leash right. and they can be, you know, 100, 200 yards away. Um, so we're listening for the bell or if it's nighttime, we're watching for the lights. And you can imagine if you mm. were a missing child in the woods at night and you had some strange animal coming up to you, how terrifying it might be. But to hear a bell and see a light coming and to have a dog come up that says search dog is much more reassuring to the subject also. Um, I can only imagine. Wow. Some of the dogs range really far from their handlers. So the dogs are sometimes wearing a GPS collar. So we as handlers have GPS units, radios, you know, first aid kits, and a lot of gear that we're carrying. But um, our GPS only has our location on it. So some of the dogs will have a GPS collar on them. So we can 
look at our GPS unit and see exactly where our dog is in relationship to us. Um, and that can be, you know, very useful information. Um, there are, you know, individual preferences in terms of um, collars and, you know, not everybody likes to have the GPS on the dog. There are certain circumstances for urban search and rescue. They usually do not want harnesses or collars on their dogs because their dogs are working in areas of rubble where they could get caught or snagged. Yes, I heard things. that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, there's a difference between the wilderness um, and the urban search and rescue. So depending upon the dog, the handler preference and the particular type of search we're on, the gear may vary. But for the most part, handlers are always carrying a pack with, um, we always have extra water for ourselves and the dog. Um, we always have a basic first aid kit for both ourselves, anybody we might locate, and also the dog. Um, dogs do get hurt doing this. That's one of the most difficult parts of this type of work that ping-ponging back and forth between the subject and the handler you know dogs can get caught on on um you know downed pine trees and other That's things great, they can yeah. you know twist an ankle or you know my dog has had a couple of back injuries it's it's really physically demanding um mm -hmm. and something you know, we have to take into consideration when we're, we're training, we have to train. So we have to keep practicing, but you also want to make sure that when you're doing just trainings, that the area is, is fairly safe. When we go on an actual search, sometimes, you know, we're really risking our dogs with the idea that we're going to potentially save someone's life, but it's a, it's a, a lot to consider. We always have some sort of communication um, so we've, we're generally using radios. The typical way that it would work on a search when, when you show up and somebody is missing and they're going to send out a canine team, the canine team generally consists of the dog, the handler, and then one or two additional individuals, um, usually either search and rescue um, I'm gonna have to break. personnel or law enforcement. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to have to break off here. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, Dan. And, uh, Enjoy your seminar. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thanks. And then, of course, depending upon the weather conditions, if it's cold weather, um, we like to be pretty self-sustainable if we were to get stuck or need to stay out for an extended period of time. So we generally have, you know, extra clothing um, and provisions for the dog if we needed to be out there for any length of time. Um, so that's how it generally works in terms of the, the gear. We, we usually do carry quite a bit on us. Yeah. How many, how many pounds is that? And you mentioned all these things and I'm like, it's going in my head. I'm going, okay, that's about three pounds. That's about. Well, then the nice thing about being the, the handler um, for the canine team is what I can often do is offset some of my gear to my flankers. Those are the people that are going out yeah, with me. Okay. So I usually have the flankers um, carry some of my water because the water tends to be almost the heaviest thing that I have in my pack. Yeah, and my dog yeah. tends to go through a, a lot of water, especially when the weather is warm. 
So, mm. you know, we can kind of split the load there um, amongst the different people that are out with that particular canine team. And honestly, most of our searches were not, you know, in the middle of Montana, that terribly separated, um, you know, from other human beings. Um, and so a lot of times the, if the DEC is out there, they will have four wheelers and other all-terrain vehicles and stuff to bring us supplies like food and water if we were out for extended periods of time, or sometimes even give us a ride to our search area. So the dog, if we have to walk three miles to even get to our starting point, mm-hmm. you know, we might as well save save the human and, and dog's energy until we get to that location and then start. Right. Okay, um, we do have another question. We do have another question. Great. Okay. Mike, you may now unmute. Mike Gardino. There should be a dialogue on your screen. Or if you're using an iPhone, it's on the bottom, kind of in the middle. How's that? Am I on there now? you go. Okay. We got gotcha. you. Uh, yeah. Keystrokes work. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. The, um, you, you mentioned that you, you do carry a lot of water and your dog goes through a lot of water. I was wondering, do they, do they suggest conserving the water? If you put down, you know, uh, you know, a, a pint of water and the dog drinks half of it, do you conserve what the remaining bits only because, you know, if you get stuck out there, you're going to need that water. Yeah, I mean, that is a consideration, um, depending upon how far we are from incident command or other searchers. Um, It honestly hasn't been much of a problem for, you know, the six years that I've been doing this um, here in New York State. We usually are able to get um, people to bring us stuff if we need it, if we ran out of water. So my dog also loves to drink from streams and other things. So a lot of times she almost prefers the the water found, you know, in the wild over the Poland spring bottle that I have in my pack. Um, So it's, it's different. If I felt like I needed to give her water so that she could work efficiently, which sometimes happens in the really hot weather, they go through a lot of water and their nose really doesn't work so well if they're dehydrated at all. Um, then I would say, give it all to them. And then I would just radio to command that we're going to need more water brought out to us. And they usually will, will bring stuff out to us so that we don't have to stop the search and go in to get those sorts of provisions. Yeah, I, I, I asked because we watched um, a search and rescue the other night on, on television. I, <laughs> I don't get involved too closely, but uh, it's dangerous for me. They were in a desolate area. I believe it was the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, they kept going out. And, uh, you know, they would stay out until dark. And I was just thinking about losing a team, uh, you know, a, a, a canine team out in the, the desolate woodland area. Yeah, and that's why we always have communication and GPS now. So, you know, if if we're out, it's the dog, the handler, and I usually have two people with me and I almost always personally bring law enforcement with me. So one of the interesting things I've learned from search and rescue that I would have never known had I not gone into this is that not all missing persons want to be found. And sometimes you come across individuals who are despondent and um, 
you know, try to get away from you or may actually be armed themselves. And so, you know, I've learned to, uh, to take that into consideration. You know, my thought was we would be out looking for people who would be so happy and thankful to be found. And that's not always the case in my experience. Goodness. Could you, could you tell us about one of those (laughs) without? uh... (laughs) Well, I would say, Two of our most common um, types of calls that we go on um, are for individuals, adults with dementia. And Mm. um, a lot of times they're very confused and disoriented. They don't understand that the dog is not like a wolf or something else trying to harm them. So they can be frightened of both the searchers and the dog. So you need to be very reassuring. And sometimes they will try to like run away from you. Um, again, because they're disoriented and they're, you know, they're fearful. Mm-hmm. So that's a common type of subject that we respond to here in New York State. And then despondent individuals who may have come on really hard times and are um, contemplating suicide. And so they may be out in a wilderness area, either with a firearm or with, you know, medication trying to harm themselves and so we're trying to get to them quickly before they're before they take any sort of action that can't be undone and with those types of cases um, it generally works best to have some law enforcement with us too so i would say besides the water recoveries um, individuals with dementia that kind of walk away and despondent individuals are our primary types of subjects that we're looking for. Uh, This is Lynn. I just have one question. Um, I'm curious, uh, the the food that you have to feed these dogs, I would imagine that it is a very high protein type food, correct? Correct. Um, High protein and relatively high fat. Right. You know, as a as a parent and handler of Labrador retrievers, I I work very, very hard to keep my retrievers as lean as possible for, you know, health reasons. Um, But I found that I can give them pretty high fat, high protein diets as long as they're expending a lot of that energy. Interesting. May I ask what you give them? Just like, you know. (laughs) Sure. So I feed origin. Origin. Um, Okay. Um, but I also do do some raw with my with my mm, dogs. Yeah, um, and I do give them some human grade types of food too. Got it. Got it. Um, what I've learned, which was fascinating to me too, and I only learned this, you know, once I got involved in search and rescue, with the fat, the fat for the dogs can actually help them stay cool in the hot weather, and I would have never thought that. Um, so I actually after a couple of years, I started increasing the amount of fat in their diets over the summer months because it has to help. It actually helps them with temperature regulation. So a dog Mm. that's consuming higher amounts of fat can actually stay cooler than the dog that's consuming lower amounts of fat, completely opposite to what I would have thought, but it's very interesting. So nutrition does play a big, a big role. So does coat. Because I had a golden and I knew that the coats will make a difference too. If you have, if you don't shave 
you know, a lot of people shave their goldens in the summertime, but if you don't, it, their coat actually keeps them cooler. So yes. thank you very much for your yeah, question. The, the, the double coated um, dogs are cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter, which again, kind of is counterintuitive, but it is interesting that, that, that it works mm. in that way. Thank you for your answer. You're welcome. This is Annie. I have a, another question. Um, what do you think are the main differences between uh, labs and shepherds? <laughs> well, <laughs> I've had three labs in a row and I'm only just now six months in with my first shepherd. And of course, I only got her, you know, so I've only had her for four months. And she's six months old. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning and I... Not that I'm regretting it, but <laughs> it's it's a little bit more challenging for me, the shepherd, than the labs. But again, I've had multiple labs in a row. I feel like um, the my shepherd, anyway, is very, very quiet. My labs were always very vocal as puppies, um, very noisy, barky, playfully noisy, not necessarily right. excessive barking. I don't mean it like that. Um and my shepherd is so quiet. Like my shepherd doesn't bark when somebody rings the doorbell. My shepherd has like no, very, very little sound. Now that may change and maybe that's specific to her and not all shepherds, but I was surprised at how quiet she is as a puppy. Um, very, very good at night and in the crate. Although I feel like my, my Labradors were also very easy in terms of um, house training and stuff like that. I right. never really had any issues with any of my dogs. Um, I feel like the, um, the shepherd is maybe a little more serious than my labs. My labs <laughs> always seem to just have this kind of goofy, playful, yeah. la yeah, la yeah. la. Whereas my, my young shepherd is all business. Like she's yes. like, are we training? Are we training? And if I don't, if I don't give her a command, she starts just sort of throwing behavior. She'll sit, she'll <laughs> sit, she'll down, she'll do her little tricks figuring out like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Whereas yeah. my labs would just sort of crawl onto my lap and, yep. and hang around. My shepherd doesn't seem to really be as touchy feely. Um, like I try to pet her and she usually just gets up and leaves. And I'm like, I don't think she likes being pet <laughs> the same way that my labs do. But again, that might not be all shepherds. It might just be my specific be dog. Yeah. Um, the biggest difference I found is I feel like my shepherd is a phenomenal retriever. I mean, from day one, I could throw the ball and she'd bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. She seems to retrieve better than my Labrador retrievers. But when it comes to guarding, my retrievers seem to be my, my good alarm system. If somebody comes to the house and my shepherd is completely quiet. So go figure. That's too funny. I, I you know. It's, it's so funny how they, how we, we, you know, we stereotype our dog breeds and then we meet a dog that's so not stereotyped. Yep. It's like, wow. <laughs> oh. hey, we do have one question. Um, I'm sorry. Okay. If your phone number ends in 838, you may now unmute and you're free to talk. Okay, uh, it's it should be either star 
six would unmute you or if you're on an iPhone, you should see the ask to unmute uh, dialogue on your screen. Okay. Well, okay. Okay, so there we go. Hello. Hi. Yes, it, hi. It, my phone finally said I was unmuted. I'm sorry. Um, okay, first I want to thank you for doing this really important job. It, it sounds like a really great thing to do. And the second question is, like, Dan had a dog that didn't work out at uh, Canine Companions. I would think that the, um, the guide dog schools might uh, be a good source for rescue dogs um, that don't work out because they they're not uh, they're they're not good service dogs, but they're doing great as rescue at you know being more energetic and stuff. Do you use them a lot? School. Um, I don't know of very many. I only know of of two people that have gone that route. But let me tell you, as I'm working with this puppy right now in my in my mind, I'm thinking that's what I would like to do next time around. Let someone else do all the foundation work with the dog, get it through puppyhood, and then then let me uh, take it as a search dog. So it's something I'm personally interested in doing in a few years when I start my next search dog. But um, but I. I think it is a bit unusual and that's why I thought it would be fun for Dan to be able to share his particular story with his dog, Oakland. So not common. Okay, we have another question. Lori Scharf, you may unmute. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering before you talked about how you get like a like your shepherd is is kind of going to be a replacement for an older dog do you team them together to do some of the training um or would that be more of a distraction for the teaching concept purpose well a lot of the work that goes into having a good search dog is not even in the realm of the, the scenting part. It's about the obedience and how to behave around people and dogs and crates and how to, you know, just generally get through life. So I feel like my Labrador Retriever Juno is a really good role model for my little shepherd Lexi. I do walk them together all the time. And my lab is very, very solid. Like she doesn't bark. She's not reactive at all towards other dogs, towards other people, towards strange objects, you know, flags flapping, mm -hmm. things spinning. She's very calm and relaxed. So I feel like the puppy has learned that, oh, these things are no big deal. Um, where I walk, I often come across deer um, and other wildlife, and my lab does not chase, does not show any interest in those. So I feel like the shepherds learn that, okay, I guess we don't, we don't chase animals, we don't do that sort of behaviors. So I think in that respect, absolutely, it's been very, very nice to have a very appropriate adult dog. And of course, when they're playing and off leash together in the house, my Labrador will correct the puppy if the puppy mm -hmm. is doing something that is inappropriate like when my lab is laying down and the puppy wants to climb over her my dog will growl at her my dog will you know tell her nope that's not appropriate and so i think that's been very very useful 
when it comes to the actual search and rescue training, I really don't work them together. Um, so they're working at completely different levels. My, you know, my pup is just learning and my puppy, I didn't mention this is going to be human remains detection only. My older dog is live find and human remains detection. And what I've learned from going to different seminars and traveling and working with FEMA is that sometimes depending upon the scenario, it's nice to have a dog that specializes in one or the other. Um, again, depending upon the, the circumstance. So they're actually going to have a little bit different specialties. Right. Um, so when I'm training them for search and rescue, I'm working them separately. But all of the other part of teaching them obedience and how to get along in real life, it's been very useful to have them together. Thank you. Okay, uh, Nancy Marie, you may unmute. Yeah, um, sometimes when people have guide dogs and they the, the guide dog gag has to be retired because of age or health issues, they keep the dog. And in some cases, I know people have gone there and the dog that's retired or can't go out to be the guide anymore is jealous of the newcomer that comes in. Is that something that you find with you know, the rescue dogs that, you know, when they can't go out anymore, that well, they get jealous that they can't go out anymore? I certainly think that can happen in certain situations. And so... You know, most search and rescue handlers also keep their dog through retirement. So, you know, once the dog has reached a certain age or, you know, common in search and rescue, sometimes a dog may have some sort of a, a health problem or an injury that prevents them from doing the type of work that they used to do. Um, you know, they'll, they'll start working another dog. Um, I think if you can still play some sort of games with the older dog, so maybe, you know, as my, my lab gets older, maybe she won't be able to go out and do the 100 acre problems anymore, but I can still play hide and seek around the house. I can still do little things with her so that she's still kind of getting some of that exposure. Um, I think it is different with different dogs. Some dogs do seem to be sort of jealous of the newcomer, others not so much. I've been pretty fortunate. My, my black lab really likes her. They, they tend to play a lot. I do keep the dogs separate unless they're outside or I'm with them. I don't let them have full reign to everything in my house, mainly because the puppy would um, get into trouble. So my older dogs have access to the house where the puppy only has limited access and for the most part is either in a crate or in one part of my kitchen that's partitioned off. So I think sometimes allowing the older dog to have at least some space that's just for them away from the new dog might kind of help with the, the jealousy. You know, my older dog sleeps in bed with me, but the puppy's in a crate at night. So, you know, if you can do some of those things that might help, um, help prevent that from happening. But I do think it's just different with different dogs. Some get jealous and, and some not so much. Thank you. Well, we don't seem to have any other questions at this time, Annie. This is Annie, I have a question that goes back to um, 
you mentioned deer and stuff. Uh, have you ever surprised anything like a, like a bear or, <laughs> or, or a huge stag or something that you're like, whoa. Yes. Well, I've had, I have two different stories. So one time I was just really taking my, my two labs out, my, my search dog. And then my older, I have a chocolate lab. That's 12, just a family pet. I was taking them out just for, you know, a hike and had let them out of the car and they were both off leash and I'm, I'm walking along and I look and there's a bear right on the trail in front of me. And of course my heart just like (laughs) stopped and I just started calling my dogs you know, come here, come here, and ran back to the car, my heart going a million miles an hour. There was no issue, nothing happened, but we were in pretty close proximity. And I'm very pleased to say that recall is one of the things we work on more than anything in search and rescue, Mm. starting from a very, very young age. That dog comes every single time you call that dog and they come to you, you treat that dog. You never just like put them on leash or end the game because you want them to come every single time. It can be a matter of life and death on a real search or in training. If you come across something dangerous or if they're running towards a cliff or something else, that recall is like the most important um, of the obedience commands in terms of, of safety. Um, On another occasion, I was actually, um, acting as the subject. So I was hiding for two of my teammates. One of them was Dan and uh, another teammate, Linda, who were both getting ready for their night test. So I was out in the middle of Geneseo um, in the middle of the woods, sitting there at night for these dogs to come find me. And I figured I would be out for a few hours. So I brought snacks with me, which normally (laughs) wouldn't be a bad idea, except I didn't realize that there are also bears out in (laughs) that particular area. So as I'm sitting there kind of crunching on my pretzels, crunching on my pretzels, I could kind of hear something behind me, which I was hoping were deer. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm, I'm turning around. I don't hear the search dog bells. I don't see the search dog lights coming. And I'm starting to get a little concerned that whatever's coming up behind me is, is, you know, potentially a bear. I don't actually know what it was. I never did see what it was. Um, but I started getting pretty nervous and I just, you know, started yelling like, go away, go away bear. I started making a lot of noise to the point where the handlers could hear me and radioed me and are like, what are you yelling? I'm like, uh, don't worry. I think it was a bear, but, um, <laughs> but nothing <You're>, terrible. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, you know, the recall issue is a big issue for us with guide dogs as well. And I had a mm-hmm. trainer once tell me, she, he said two things. When you, when a dog does something right, you give them a paycheck. And when a dog, when you call that dog to you, you, always make it a good place to be that's a good place to be right there with you so you're right treats playtime mm-hmm. things like that yeah even if it's time to go or say i don't really but i mean if i were at a dog park and okay it's time to go or whatever um you know i would call the dog and reward 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 let them play again call them again let them play again mm-hmm. do it a couple yeah. of times before I would put that leash on to take them out of that area and end the fun um, because it's so important that they come each and every time. I also tend to have um, different value treats in my little treat pouch. So a lot of times I'm using like Bill Jack's or little 
dog kibble, but then I'll have chicken or something really high value. And so every time I say, you know, Lexi here, which is her command to come, um, she's getting high value treats. And then, you know, it's low value treats for a lot of the other obedience stuff, but that come every single time that dog is given a high value treat. Um, On our canine team, we actually practice having the dogs come to any of the handlers in an emergency situation. If something happened to me and that dog needed to go to one of the other handlers. So we do actually practice it. There's only two things that we, we practice in terms of obedience with each other's dogs. And that's, we have an emergency down, which is we, you know, we give them a hand signal and we have a verbal command and that dog is supposed to immediately down and stay put until we get to them. And then we have that hear or come command. And we want that dog to respond to anybody that says the dog's name and that command. We also do practice putting the dogs in each other's vehicles and crates. um, So the dog is comfortable loading up with somebody different from their handler. Again, in an emergency situation, if something happened to me, I need somebody else to be able to safely put my dog away. So we practice a lot of those types of things in in training. Oh, thank you. Any more questions, Lynn? I do not see any more. No, I do not. I have another question uh, then about uh, going to the the breeding. Do you do uh, do you, do certain breeders um, keep in touch with search and rescue folks? And are there specific um, specific breeders that get recommended? Uh, you know, and how, how, what's that process like? You know, when you're thinking about it, you know, who, who do you contact? I mean, it's not like it's in a phone book or <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's a word of mouth and reputation and, it you, is. Go to, you know, do you go to, um, you know, kennel events, you know, uh, things like that? Yeah, there's, I mean, it can vary, obviously, depending upon what breed you're looking for. Um, how I acquired my, my shepherd was one of my teammates has had a couple different shepherds that have just been phenomenal in terms of their temperament and drive great working dogs, but really calm, stable, normal you know, pet dogs too. And I felt like, wow, her dogs seem to really have the qualities that I like and want if I get a shepherd. And so I, I actually went to Montana, which is where that kennel is, where she gets her dogs to choose my dog. Um, and that was, you know, how I kind of found the shepherd. I knew they came from, you know, obviously using a reputable breeder to make sure that their health is going to be good. I mean, it's a, it'd be a tragedy to spend all of this time, effort, and money training either a service dog or a search and rescue dog to have them develop, you know, elbow dysplasia or yeah. hip problems or something like that. So um, while it's possible to use rescues, um, I just feel like I've put so much time and effort into the training. It'd be nice to to know sort of the genetic background in terms of the health problems that can be more common in certain breeds. And also just knowing that they're coming from, from working lines, from good reputable breeders. And um, 
you know, having those conversations, word of mouth, knowing where other people have gotten their dogs. Um, what's interesting with the Labrador retrievers, obviously there's different sort of variations. You've got the English labs and you've got the, you know, American field labs. And, yes. and I know a lot of times for service dogs, they like to put like a little bit of golden retriever in the lab mix. And, um, a lot of times those types of dogs that have those sort of mixes end up working out really, really well for search and rescue. They tend to be like amongst the healthiest. So you get the, the longer, you know, working time with them and just their, their temperament tends to be really balanced. Um, for search and rescue, sometimes we like smaller, more compact dogs. And so certain breeders of Labradors will have smaller <laughs> dogs in their lines and then other um, breeders will have larger dogs depending upon, you know, what the, what the line is going into. So size, temperament, and health is really the main things that we're, we're looking at in terms of trying to pick a puppy. Do you ever work with anybody on, do you ever work with people on horseback instead of ATVs, like different terrain or? It's pretty common out West um, for search and rescue teams to do stuff on horseback. Um, less of a need here, especially here in Western New York. Um, so there are no, no Federation teams here in New York state that I know of that have um, that equine component of search and rescue, but out mm -hmm. West, it is something that's a, uh, that's very, very common. Yeah. Uh, do you expose your dogs to, um, to horses? Are yeah, there, I are there do. Large um, domesticated animals. Yep, absolutely. So the breeder that I went to in Montana, she actually lives next to a horse farm. So that's convenient in terms of exposing the dogs to horses. Um, but we, you know, during those early stages of puppy socialization just like with the service dogs we try to get that dog exposed to as many different people as many different places as many different surfaces as many different right. sounds um as many different animals so that um you know if they encounter a new situation you know when they're working that it doesn't kind of throw them off right yeah annie do we have time for one more question yeah Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Okay. Um, Yasmin, you may now unmute. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, have, as far as the dogs that do like the recovery of, you know, of someone who, you know, may have passed away, do you guys see like any kind of emotional reaction from the dogs after a while? Like if they've seen too many, you know, body parts or something in the woods? That's a great question. And actually it's something a lot of times people will ask us about. And I would say, no, for the dog, it is a game. It is always a game and the dog is expecting the reward. However, <laughs> the dog, just like a service dog would be, is very in tune with the emotional state of the handler. And honestly, almost all of my personal finds have been recoveries. So I've unfortunately encountered a number of individuals that were deceased. And although you're so happy to have found the lost person, you're usually quite upset and disappointed that the person is not alive. And so how the handler responds in that situation can be transmitted to the dog. The dog isn't upset about finding the deceased human, 
but they pick up on the emotional state of the people that are there, the people that are present. If the handler is very upset, and a lot of times on a real search, you might forget to reward the dog. So the dog just worked for three hours, found somebody, unfortunately that person is deceased, and you as the handler forget that you're supposed to now reward the dog. The dog just did their job, but you're so sort of devastated by the scene that you're seeing that sometimes you forget to do the play, do the food reward or whatever it might be. And so it takes some sort of conscious effort. Um, most of our handlers have traveled to different locations. Like we went to the body farm at Western Carolina University to expose ourselves to human cadavers um, so that we wouldn't be so adversely affected if we're on a search and we come across someone. So we try to have that exposure for both the human and the dog. But I would say in the vast majority of cases, it's the humans that are upset and emotional. And the dog is only responding differently because they're picking up on that. It's not that the dog is upset by finding somebody that's deceased. The dog really doesn't know. They found their thing, they want their reward. And they're like, why is, why is mom so sad? Why is she not throwing me the ball? Why is she not, you know, telling me I'm such a good dog? Um, because in, in real life, sometimes in the heat of the moment, you kind of forget those things. Okay. Uh, we do have another hand. Oh, great. Uh, okay. Lori, uh, you may unmute. I was wondering, um, do you do work like with the dogs when they're puppies to prepare them for situations um like like you were just saying when you're doing a a uh you know a find to not disturb the area like they know okay i got to my target but now i turn around and go back and i don't move you know like i don't move anything that could potentially be evidence for lack of a better word that's very important especially for the crime scene dogs um, and that's one of the things I'll be doing a little bit different with this puppy than I did with my older dog. So my, my first dog was a live find dog. I wanted to save lives and find people who were alive. Um, and then as I was getting call outs and finding that people weren't always alive, then I started training human remains detection with her. Now, if somebody's, you know, just laying there, she's generally not going to touch a person, whether they're alive or deceased. So we don't like them touching live people either. We don't want right, them going right. up and giving them a kiss. So they're, they're not supposed to go all the way in. Um, but what I found when I've worked buried problems with my live find dog is she will dig. She'll try to uncover them, which is not good if you're working a criminal investigation where they're, and, and you could potentially disturb evidence. So as I'm training the shepherd who will be specifically doing human remains detection only, I'm very careful to not allow her to ever get to the source and to correct any sort of touching, nosing or digging immediately starting now in puppyhood, something I didn't necessarily do with the, uh, with the older dog. So ideally, yes, we don't want the dogs disturbing evidence, um, touching anything, moving anything, digging, Yes. Okay, we don't have any questions right now, Annie. Okay, I have another question. 
um, have you ever flown in uh, to um, to do a recovery, to do a search, like in a helicopter or a plane, a small plane? We have we do train with Air One, which is the helicopter for the Erie County Sheriff's Office. And we have exposed the dogs to the helicopter with it on, putting the dogs in and out. And some of the dogs have gone on helicopter rides, um, but it's actually never happened on an actual search that I've been involved with. Um, but it is something that can happen and mm. does happen pretty regularly in other parts of the country. Um, a lot of times we, we do use the helicopter quite a bit in search and rescue, but it's generally once the person has already been located and to get them out of the area. And so um, a lot of times, you know, we don't really need to transport the dog via the helicopter, but it's something we do expose them to in case it does happen to come up. Are you guys all certified in canine first aid and all that stuff? Do you take classes for that? Yes, we are. Yep. And we actually prefer the people that go out with us, even if they're not work, if they're not a canine handler, that they also are trained in canine first aid. So, you know, the people that go out to assist the canine and the handler, we call them flankers. So on our team, we have certain flankers that are very familiar with the dogs that come out and train regularly with the dogs and are also certified in canine first aid. Okay. Um, What would you, I mean, if somebody was interested in doing this, how how would you get them started? Well, if, again, it's different in different places around New York State. Our particular team, Niagara Frontier Search and Rescue, runs a Search and Rescue Academy every other year. And so if anybody's interested in just doing canine, we make them go through the entire Search and Rescue Academy first. And then they actually have to come out with the canine team for like another six months be on the team for one year before they can start doing the canine stuff themselves. So we sort of have a a fairly long process to become a canine handler. Other teams in New York, you can kind of start sort of right off the bat. Um, We're one of the most, (laughs) we're very strictly regulated for some reason. Well, we have a large team and we cover eight counties and we have close relationships with the the sheriff's office. And I think that's why we have such Mm. a, such a system in place but we found that people need to you have to understand search and rescue first you can't just become a canine handler there's a lot to search and rescue you know there's the first aid component there is the navigation we do a lot of things with map and compass you have to understand gps you know Mm -hmm. there's a fitness component to it you know some people are not able to physically do what we do so there's so many different components to it Um, sometimes people think, oh, I'll just, you know, my dog is smart. My dog could do this. People say that all the time. Well, my dog could do it. And I'm like, I'm sure your dog could, but could you, you know, there's a whole another human component to it. So there's a lot, a lot of training that goes into it. It's not, it's not as easy as I thought it would be when I first joined or got involved. And, um, like I said, I've also learned that, you know, not everyone we're out looking for necessarily wants to be found. So how many people are um, in your particular, um, in the Niagara region? So our team has 45 active members, but we only have five that are part of the canine team. Okay. 
we have a pretty big ropes component. So we have 10 or 15 members that just do the high angle ropes with, you know, Zwer Valley and the Niagara Gorge and some of the areas we have around here. Um, mm. We get a lot of those types of rescues. Do you climb? Are you a climber? I, I actually used to, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> yeah. Lots of great stuff. <laughs> I'm so afraid of hurting myself now. I used to want to rollerblade with the dog for exercise. And I'm like, yeah. I'm so afraid I'm going to hurt myself. <laughs> it's just not worth the risk. And, um, you know, you when you're doing the canine part of search and rescue, you're really dedicated to the canine stuff. And it's going to prohibit you from doing like the swift water rescue and the rope rescue. You, you really hmm. don't have enough. Well, most people don't have enough time and energy to do all those different areas. Mm. You know, I uh, there was a, a woman um, who climbed um, Mount, uh, it was in Maine, Mount, I can't remember the name. Her name was um, Lynn. She's a, 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 she had a German shepherd from Fidelco. And uh, she said at, at one point when they were coming down from the mountain, they had to belay rope the dog at certain points because there was no way the dog could get down the mountain after they went up the mountain. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to like harness the dog to like a rope and lower the dog in a gorge or anything like that? I have not, but again, it's something we practice just like the helicopter. You do know, you it's a, really? Wow. Yeah. So we do actually from time to time, put the dogs in a harness and we generally are just like lifting them off the ground. Right. Um, you know, we're not really like sending them down a zip line or anything crazy by themselves. I think actually one of our handlers did zip line with her canine. Um, but for the most part, we just like to expose them to all sorts of situations because you never know what you might encounter. And so if they've mm. had it a couple of times in training, if they've been around the helicopter a couple of times, if they've been in a harness and lifted off the ground a couple of times, if that situation does come up, they're going to be a lot more comfortable than if they've never been exposed to it. Yes. Yes. Okay. We do have a one question, Annie. Do we have time for that? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, John Farina, you may unmute. Yes. Hi there. Uh, we're going to get off dogs for a second and on to something else as a ham radio operator. I'm curious you have to cover a large amount of territory when you're moving around here. Uh, <clears throat> and excuse me, what uh, what kind of radio system do they uh, do they have for you? Do they give you a, a system, a part of the system for the sheriff's department that covers a long distance? We yeah, we do. And a lot of times, even though we're using like the police radios, um, we still sometimes need like the repeaters. And I think. It, some of the this is sort of outside of my area but there are certain things on like some of the trucks like we have a search and rescue trailer and it has like the antenna that i believe like is a repeater and sends yep. the signal on um sometimes we have to relay even just on trainings we go down to allegheny state park and we might have four different teams out working simultaneously and you know team a and b can communicate teams b and c can communicate but team a can't talk to team c so we'll we'll relay through team b to send messages along um, but that is something we practice pretty regularly because communication is really really important in the field that's that's for sure thanks very much this is 
this has been interesting. Just one other question, and maybe I missed it. Um, how long does it take to, you know, as, as a guide dog user, we know that our dogs take, they go to school for about four months, you know, roughly. Um, how long does it take before a dog is, I, I guess the term is certified? It can vary quite a bit, but I would say at least two years and sometimes closer to three years for the live fine dogs because of the physical nature and the amount of ground that they need to cover. So we have to take a hundred acre test here in New York for the lot. We actually have five tests, but the, the biggest one is a hundred acres and you don't know how many people are hidden. There could be one person or two people or three people. So you have to do the whole hundred acres in order to make that decision because it's so physically demanding. A lot of times we, we don't do problems of that size until the dog is at least 18 months old because their growth plates aren't closed. Sure. So a lot of times for the live fine dogs, they're, they're three years old before they're completely operational for human remains detection. It's a little bit easier, um, less physically demanding um, and generally between the ages of two and three, you can't test before 18 months in New York state. So. Yeah. It's about on the par with most of the, uh, pretty much all of the guide dog schools. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the question. All right. Uh, okay. We have Nancy Murray. You may unmute. In New York state now, we're, we're either in hunting season or going to get go into hunting season. Has there ever been any issues with dogs being accidentally shot by some hunter that doesn't realize what kind of dog it's for? As far as I know, no, that has never happened, but it is a huge concern. Now, yeah. luckily, our color is fluorescent orange. So we are ah. our, our team colors and what the vests that we put on the dogs are usually fluorescent yellow or fluorescent orange, which help in terms of the visibility. And of course, we also have the lights and the bells. But for training, we're very vigilant when we're setting up trainings during hunting season to avoid those areas where hunting is even allowed. So a lot of times we'll be using either private property or state parks where there is no hunting for training because we don't want to put ourselves at unnecessary risk just for training. On actual searches, however, there have been, as, as a matter of fact, hunting season is one of the most common times when we're called out. Um, I would say November, December tend to be our busier months. Um, what generally happens is the DEC will actually go in and clear the area. So they will actually explain to hunters, we've got a search going on, you can't hunt here. Um, and so they will actually try to communicate to locals and other people that might be in the area that they need to leave, that we've got a missing person, that there's an urgent situation. So they do try to get um, the word out to hunters that we've got somebody lost, we're going to be performing a search and that they can't be in those areas that they normally would be allowed to hunt in. Thank you. Okay, uh, Yasmin, you may unmute. Uh, thanks. Um, I just wanted to know, like, how, like, who determines if the dog is really, like, ready to retire? Like, is there a merit system? Like, is there, like, a three strikes you're out if they, you know, messed up pretty bad, like a few times or like who really decide, does the dog, you know, decide and give you like little hints or is there like a system in place? Like if they, you know, didn't do the job, 
you know, God forbid, um, you know, um, if they didn't do the job correctly a few times and then it's, it's just like, okay, yeah, maybe their, their heart's not in it anymore. Well, we do have pretty vigorous um, training protocols in place and certification procedures. So in order for the dog to become operational, there are a series of tests that the dog has to go through. And ultimately they have to be tested in an environment they've never been in before, finding a subject they've never found before by an evaluator that's not part of that dog's canine team. So it's very strict in terms of how we even get certified. Then once you've gotten operational status, you still have to recertify every two years. So every two years, you have to redo the last, the big test um, to see if your dog is still able to perform the duties that, you know, they've been operational for. If, I mean, the dogs aren't perfect. The dogs do make mistakes and sometimes the dogs can, can miss, miss a subject. Um, if a dog happens to not find somebody that was in their assigned area, and then that person is later found in that area, there's usually sort of a sit down between the, the handler, um, whatever agency was running the event, and you kind of are looking at all of the, the factors. And in many cases, in environmental factors, weather can play a huge role. Our dogs miss cadavers in the winter. When the, the body is frozen and covered with snow, it's really, really hard for dogs to find a lot of scent. Um, if a dog missed a live person in the winter, that would be another story. So you would look at the factors, what happened that this dog had a miss, um, and you try to, you know, see what could have been a factor. Sometimes, you know, dogs just have off days where they're just not working. And I think it's really up to the handler to make that determination. There have been a couple of times, um, I think my dog's back was hurting her the one time, like she just seemed off. And I knew within 20, 30 minutes that my dog is not working right. And I'm like, you know what, it's, it's my responsibility to say, you know what, something's not right here. I'm going to end this now. I'm not going to continue searching and then miss somebody. Let another dog team come through here with a healthy dog. Something was wrong with my dog. She just wasn't working normally. Mm. And, you know, it was up to me to say that um, you don't want to over promise or put your dog in a situation that the dog hasn't trained for, or you feel like they're not going to succeed in. Um, but you can do, you know, everything right. Your dog can seem to be working just fine and you can sometimes miss something. Um, and then you just kind of have to go back through and see what, what happened? What did I do wrong? Did I miss subtle clues? You know, that my dog was trying to tell me to go over here. Um, no one on our team has ever had a miss, you know, luckily knock on wood, but it can happen and it can happen to really good experienced dog teams because again, dogs are a tool. They're not perfect. They have on and off days and, you know, you're, you're trying to, to figure it out. But if you have a couple of situations with the same canine team having misses, then they're going to retest you. And if you don't pass the test, you're no longer operational. So we do have sort of procedures in place to, to kind of keep that from happening. Um, but I think the, the primary responsibility is, is for the handler to decide that, you know what, this is too physically demanding for my dog. She's not up to it physically. Or um, if you feel like your dog is just sort of lost interest, they don't want to play the game anymore, then it's not fair to go out on searches and, you know, misrepresent yourself.
Okay, everybody. This is Annie. Uh, we're coming up at uh, um, uh, it's ten fifty eight, so um, we have till eleven. And I wanted to uh, to do closing comments. If no one else has any more questions, Lynn, how we do? We have any more hands? We are at, we don't have any questions right now, Annie. Oh, okay. Uh, Marlene, I want to just thank you so much for. Um, coming here today and sharing your time and and your experience, I uh, I learned so much and uh, you know just our you know, our bond with our dogs uh, is a very special, very unique thing, and it's just nice to be able to connect with other people who um, understand and appreciate you know just how important our dogs are to us, how special they are. And, you know, the time and the effort it takes to invest in that relationship. And it is a relationship. We have, <laughs> just like we have relationships with the, our human um, family, we have relationships with our canine ones as well. So would you like to give us any last minute thoughts uh, before we close out um, this session? Um, well, I really appreciate the the opportunity to share what I know about search and rescue dogs. And um, I feel like, you know, the more I learn, the less I know that it's a very, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's, it's pretty complicated and that dogs are just amazing, amazing assets to, to our lives. And I just can't imagine the world, you know, without them. I think they, they just are, such a, a boost to, you know, human morale and can really make the difference between life and death. I totally agree. Uh, where would we be without our dogs? <laughs> um, okay. So uh, if no one else has any other questions, um, we're just gonna, uh, we're gonna end this session and I, I'm gonna tell you what's coming up next and give you a little bit of extra information about the rest of the sessions later on today. So bear with me. My technology is not cooperating. So this was the morning session for Guide Dog Users of the Empire State with Marlene Crimmin and uh, the New York State Federation of Search and Rescue Teams. Uh, up next is uh, our session coming up at 11.15, I believe, is our session with the New York um, Council of Citizens of Low Vision, uh, and a panel discussion uh, of low vision and, uh, and how to cope with low vision and some tools and tricks uh, about that. So stay tuned, everyone. This is Annie again. We'd like to thank some of our sponsors, uh, Lighthouse Guild and Andewitt Intangible Research Limited.
and the New York State Preferred Store, New York State Preferred Source Program. Those were our corporate sponsors for our two days of programming. And also it's National um, Guide and Service Dog Month. Uh, so that was appropriate for GDUES to, um, to bring us into Saturday's programming. The CCLVI session will go on to 12.15. Then we're going to have a little break. And then we're going to resume uh, with the RSVNY programming. And that's going to go until 2 o'clock. And we'll have a little bit of a break. And then we're going to have uh, an Affiliates in Action program. Um, we're going to get to hear from three of our national affiliates. And uh, Ian Foley is going to facilitate that. I think we're going to have another little break and then go right into the scholarship session and introduce our scholarship winners for um, the ACBNY scholarship. And then we're going to... Uh, go into the, uh, the last program of the day, which is the ACB Through the Decades panel, uh, panel event. And that's going to uh, be facilitated by Audrey Shading and Jean Mann. And we're going to talk about American Council of the Blind of New York and uh, talk to some of our longstanding members about um, you know when they joined, how they joined, what's important to them and maybe get some laughs and giggles <laughs> um, out of all that as well. And then uh, after that, we're gonna wrap up and finish out our Saturday programming. So stand by everybody and uh, we'll see you again at 11.15. Annie, would you like me to play some vendor announcements? Sure. Then? Here we go, folks. Yeah. Whatever Special you thanks got. to our virtual exhibitor sponsorships, Spectrum, OrCam, CAPV, or the Central Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Lighthouse Guild, Andewit and Tangible Surface Research Limited, Behind Our Eyes, Newsreel Magazine, and the New York State Preferred Source Program for New Yorkers who are blind or visually impaired. Thanks to all of our individual sponsors, Anthony Stevens, Don Horn, Rita and Jim Polsoni, Roger Dennis, Nancy and Bill Murray, Mary Beth Metzger, Bob White, Ian Foley, Jean Mann, Maureen and Sal Moscato, Kathy Casey, Mary Ellen Cronin, Bob Charles Cronin, Kathy Farina, Ann Parsons, 
Mernavada, Dr. Joe Granderson, Becky Davidson, Donna Brown, Lacey Coward, Maria Samuels, Michael O'Brien, Karen Blackwitz, Annie Chiapetta, and Carrie Regan. Celebration messages from Anthony Stevens. Sending love to my former home. Hope everyone has a wonderful convention. From Joe Granderson. Congratulations, ACB of New York, on this day of 50 years of celebration. From Carrie Regan. Happy 50th anniversary, ACB of New York. Thanks for years of advocacy, support, and friendship. From Becky Davidson, congrats, ACB of New York, on 50 years of service and advocacy on behalf of blind and visually impaired New Yorkers. From Ann Parsons, congratulations on 50 years. From Carrie Laney and the NYSPS, NYSPSP is pleased to join ACBNY again this year. Good wishes for a great conference. From Diane Jordan, good times and well wishes to everyone during these trying times. God bless. From Andrew Pachinski, thank you to the NCB of New York for this generous scholarship. From Don Moore, here's hoping that the next 50 years will be as successful as the previous 50 years. From Jean Mann, ACB of New York, so glad to be a member of this great organization. Congratulations on our 50th anniversary. Here's hoping for 50 more years. <coughs> From Mary Ellen Cronin, congratulations on 50 years of service and advocacy. From Bob Cronin, best wishes for a successful convention. From Kathy Farina, Congratulations to ACB of New York on their 50th anniversary. From Maria Samuels, the Westchester Council of the Blind of New York is proud to be a chapter of the American Council of the Blind of New York. Here's looking forward to the next 50 years. From GDUES, Guide Dog Users of the Empire State. Happy tales and many licks to ACB of New York. Congratulations on your anniversary. Woof. From Karen Blackwitz, congratulations ACB of New York on 50 years of excellence. I am proud to be your president. A message from the Remembrances and Tributes Committee. The past six months have impacted all of us. We've persevered through the pain of loss, illness, isolation, and a poor economy. This poem is a tribute to those who have passed on and still live on in our hearts. We remember them. In the rising of the sun and its going down, we remember them. In the blowing of the wind and in the chill of winter, we remember them. In the opening of buds and in the warmth of summer, we remember them. In the rustling of leaves and in the beauty of autumn, we remember them. In the beginning of the year and when it ends, we remember them. 
When we are weary and in need of strength, we remember them. When we are lost and sick at heart, we remember them. When we have joys we yearn to share, we remember them. So long as we live, they too shall live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. From Gates of Prayer, Judaism Prayer Book. Hi, everyone. It's Annie Chapetta, your friendly convention coordinator. We're going on to our programming um, for mid-morning. Uh, so I'm going to introduce to you our uh, one of our special interests, special interest groups. This is New York um, Council of Citizens with Low Vision. Um, and I'm going to let President Bob Cronin um, take it from here. Good morning, Annie. Thank you very much. And thanks to all those who are listening. We are the New York State Council of Citizens with Low Vision. And boy, that's a lot of words. What we're here today to do is to share some of the tricks, strategies, and tips that we use to function independently with low vision. So I remind you of the saying that one person's garbage is another person's treasure. And the way that works in this case is that some strategy that I use or someone else uses to cope with situations in, that low vision is involved in might be unknown to someone else and might make a big positive difference in their lives. So you've heard enough from me. I've got a panel of three wonderful people and I'm going to let them talk to you. First up is Kathy Farina. Kathy is from the Albany area. She has served as an officer of the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, and I'm sure as an officer of the Capital District Chapter of ACBNY. So if you could unmute Kathy. Kathy, the floor is yours. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, well, uh, we're talking about tips and tricks and strategies. Um, I've been legally blind all my life. I grew up in the Albany area and I went to school, to college down in White Plains, New York at Pace University and got my degree from there in um, psychology. And then I worked for a few years at uh, the um, Waterfleet Arsenal, which is a, an army installation here in a, in a clerical type position. Then I decided I wanted to get my master's in social work. So I went to State University at Albany, got my degree, and I worked for 27 years at the Albany County Mental Health Clinic. And um, so I, I um, have, as I said, um, been legally blind all my life. And when I was working, I used a computer with um, JAWS and Magic at that time was the magnifying software. Um, and then I also had to read people's charts so I had a uh, closed circuit TV. Um, I believe that one was the Clearview from uh, Optilec at the time. And I also, um, because I learned Braille as a kid, that they taught me to read print, but they felt that at the time there wasn't a lot of magnification available. So I um, learned Braille um, because it would have been faster to read than to try to read print. It would would have been really 
difficult. The magnification, like the CCTVs and so forth, didn't come in until I was in college. Um, so, but the Braille came in handy at work because what I would do is I would put um, Braille labels on file folders that I had in my office that I had to refer to, you know, folders that had forms and things that I needed to use so that I could find them quickly without having to, you know, dive into the file cabinet with a magnifying glass. And then I also put Braille on the, on the, the binders that we used for our charts for our clients. I put Braille on their, their last name on the spine of the binder so that when I went in to get a chart, if there wasn't anybody in there to help me, I could grab it quickly. So those are the kind of the tips and tricks, some of them that I used when I was working. And of course, I've always used a white cane, but within the past few years, um, my vision's gotten a little worse. I have uh, retinopathy of prematurity, or they used to call it retrolental fibroplasia, um, which is, you know, when you're born premature and the oxygen damages the retinas of your eyes. So um, a few years ago, uh, a piece of the scar tissue that was on my retina broke off and it's floating around in my eye and I can't really do a whole lot about it. The, the doctor doesn't wanna operate on it cause he's afraid I might lose more vision. So what I did to cope with that was I applied for a guide dog. Um, my husband, John's been using guide dogs all his life, pretty much all his adult life. Um, and I, I know how amazing they are and what great work they do. And I thought about it over the years, but I really wasn't feeling comfortable getting a guide dog because I felt like I had too much vision and then I wouldn't trust the dog. So I thought, well, now, now that I've had this problem, you know, my vision's not as reliable, I will apply to get a dog. So I've had my dog, my first dog, Kenya, she's a cross between a black lab and a golden retriever. I've had her for two years. And um, the other thing that I did when I was losing my vision was I applied to the Northeastern Association of the Blind at Albany to get some services. Um, I felt that I needed to get some rehabilitation teaching to learn how to use the kitchen without seeing it. In other words, you know, how, how to do things by touch uh, more rather than relying mostly on my vision, which wasn't reliable anymore. So I've used that gotten their services. I've had some mobility. Um, they've worked with me. Um, I, I had knee replacement surgery back in January. And um, so they had worked with me over the well, past few, several months before the surgery um, to brush up on my cane skills. And um, now that I'm recovered, you know, pretty much from the surgery, I have my dog back so I can I can use those skills um, again. Um, poor dog ended up, uh, she's from the seeing eye and I ended up boarding her down there while I was recovering from the surgery. And I thought I'd get her back in about March or April, but then COVID hit and they shut the school down. So I had to wait until July 6th to get her back, but she's back now and we're doing great. And if anybody's got any questions, I'd be happy to answer them whenever it's appropriate. Um, I'm trying to think, I guess that's about all I can think of. I mean, I, I try to look at things as, um, you know, what can I do about this? Um, 
I guess as a social worker, I've always tried to look at solutions to things and, and try to think of what can I do to remedy the situation rather than, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I can't do it the way I used to do it. I look at it as, well, okay, I have to do it differently. How can I do that? So, although, you know, I've, you know, I used to do things a certain way when I was seeing better. Now I have to change my tact and use something different. So, um, and that's, that's all I can think of. If anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to ask them when it's time or answer them when it's time. Okay, Kathy, thank you very much. Uh, what we're going to do for questions and brainstorming, because you guys in many ways are experts of your own because you've, you've been functioning uh, with a visual impairment, many of you for a long time. So we're going to have questions and brainstorming later, but thanks, Kathy. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we're now going to go to our next speaker. Our next speaker is from the Albany area as well. Kathy Casey. Kathy has served as an officer, both on the Capitol district and on the American Council of the Blind of New York. And she's gonna to add to our discussion. So could you unmute Kathy Casey? And Kathy, you're on now. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our 50th annual convention. And this is the NYSCCLV portion. <clears throat> I have been legally blind since birth, like Kathy, with the ROP. And I was able to attend public school and also be able to uh, went on to employment for New York State. The, I was able to read regular print uh, right up until I would say just shortly before I retired from New York State. And the vision I had both retinas detached and after numerous surgeries, I lost all the vision in my right eye and I've got partial vision in the left. And what they did was take uh, oil and put that in to help secure the retina. That procedure really cut down on my vision in that left eye. And I have since learned how to navigate that um, with services from the New York State Commission for the Blind via mobility, using a cane and um, various, various other things. One of the, the things that, I, that happened with this oil, it's like looking through, it was described to me like salad dressing. So light would bounce off the oil and you would see this reflection, so to speak. So any overhead light would just amplify things. And it was like, and I had to stop and think, all right, what can I use to kind of block that? So if any of you can see, I'm wearing a visor. And that is, was my solution to what I needed to do to compensate for the brightness overhead light. And when I went to the eye doctor, they were like, wow, that's pretty good. I'd never thought of doing that. So 
sometimes you've got to use your own and in, in ingenuity um, to compensate for what you need to do. So um, it's been a challenge. Um, I'm not happy about it because in addition to the oil, there's also a buckle. And what's happening is the retina is detaching from the buckle. So the oil is what's holding everything in place. I'd love them to take that oil out, but the doctor doesn't want to touch it. And I guess I don't want them to either. So um, I just, I got to live with it. And I, if anybody has any, oh, I um, also use a handheld magnifier uh, for spot reading. I have a digital handheld magnifier that I'll use for um, reading articles of such uh, in a book. I do have the Orcam reader, which I've got to get back into using again. That um, is a challenge to use. It's, it's good, but it's also a challenge. If anybody has any questions, um, I'll feel free to take them and I'll turn it back over to you, Bob. Okay, Kathy, thank you very much. Uh, as you can see, folks, one size doesn't fit all. Many of us have uh, different levels of vision, different uh, problems, and therefore different strategies. So before I turn it over to my next speaker, uh, I'm going to talk about one thing that, that helped my wife, Mary Ellen, and I. Um, how did we match socks? You know, what happens when you throw those socks into a washing machine? And for us, this was, we, we tried safety pins. Someone said to us one day, you know, there's a company that sells a, a, I believe they call it a sock ring. And what it is, is it's a device. It's like a round circle, each one. And you put, it's a plastic slash rubber and you put your both socks in it and bingo, you don't have to worry as long as you put them in you get them out right. Uh, and just a simple strategy like that helped us. Another simple strategy, uh, we have flat paneled stove. And again, how do you deal with that? Well, at an ACBNY convention, uh, one of the vendors was, was selling um, touch graphics is the way I would call it in a sense. And you can put them on the right different spots on the stove and it makes it much more usable. Our third panelist is Mike Godino. Uh, Mike has served as the uh, national treasurer, the treasurer of ACB National, excuse me, and he's also served in many capacities uh, on the ACBNY, I believe both as treasurer and president. Mike brings a great deal of experience to the discussion and so can I ask you to unmute Mike? I'm unmuted. Mike, the floor is yours. Thank you, Bob. Hi, y'all. I'm practicing. <laughs> um, I've moved down to Virginia, so I'm no longer a New York resident, but a uh, long-term long member, and uh, I don't think I'll ever lose my affinity to New York. The uh, touch graphics, you need to be careful. I believe that's copyrighted, so... Uh, yeah. I know there's a company out there that goes by that name. So we got to be real careful with that. 
and and also your sock rings. Um, an old friend of mine, old friend to ACBNY, Evelyn Lawson, always had sock rings. I spent a lot of time with her, um, you know, over her uh, days within ACBNY, and she was one of my mentors. So I, I did spend a good deal of time with her, and she always had sock rings. And and uh, you know, Laurie and I had the opportunity to go through some of her stuff after she passed. And it was like she had sock rings everywhere and, and all kinds of ways of labeling her clothes with tags and, and sewn in tags and, and uh, as you say, safety pin tags. And she just had all kinds of ways of labeling her clothing because uh, Evelyn and her uh, husband, dearly beloved uh, Bob Larson, um, you know, were totally blind and they lived independent lives in Brooklyn, New York. So <laughs> they, they were uh, really great people and I miss them a lot. But as I said, Evelyn was one of my mentors within um, the Long Island Council of the Blind. And uh, when I got involved, she said to me, you know, we're going to make you a leader within this organization. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> but before I knew it, Evelyn put her hooks in me and, and uh, kind of taught me a lot of what that was going on. Um, I come at this whole vision loss thing with a different perspective. I was uh, sighted the first 30 years of my life. I woke up unexpectedly um, one day and, and I couldn't see. I was an automobile mechanic. I wasn't a very good student when I was younger. I took up a trade and, and learned how to fix cars. I was good at it. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so that's what I did. Um, lost my vision, as I said, about 30 years old. And, and, uh, what do I do? Can't drive a car, can't fix cars, can't, can't see the, the, you know, the silver treads, or the silver numbers on the silver tools. And, and it was just awful. So, uh, I, I kind of got out of my career, not knowing that I could have continued at a, as, as, uh, something different in the field. Um, but, uh, coming up, in into um, the field of blindness and learning more and more about my vision loss and and um, how we learn to live uh, differently uh, to make the accommodations that we need for ourselves. Um, just to to give you one idea, the black tools with the sil the silver tools with the silver numbers. I learned that if you take a little bit of nail polish and put it on the numbers and then wipe it clean. If the nail polish is dark, like a black or a red or something that's going to clash with that silver, it would fill the holes where the numbers were written. And then you can simply have a high contrast number on the silver tool. So that works really well um, if you need to have if you have a number that's embedded and you need to uh, be able to see that number for some other reason. But uh, when I was doing my training as um a student because I went back to school and uh, I went to uh, Helen Keller on Long Island and did some of my training. Um, they introduced me to a program called Zoom Text. And back then, uh, I don't know how many of you recall, but we had that program called DOS. And it, it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> in that you had to remember all kinds of uh, commands and, and, and go to what they called the DOS prompt, type in a command and it would get you to where you needed to go. And it was really awful for somebody who, uh, you know, I, I wasn't 
good with the memory thing. I, <laughs> I used to like to write things down. So uh, writing things down, I, you know, I had my, my pads and my big fat black magic markers and I would write things down. And, uh, but it, when I was introduced to zoom text, it was a whole new program. It was brand new at the time. And, and uh, the trainer at the Helen Keller said to me, here's a new program. We loaded it up and he said, play with it. And here's the book. If you want to, it's large print and you can read through it and, and see if you can figure it out. And, and I made it do tricks. I uh, learned how to use it. I learned how to manipulate it. I learned how to um, change my screen so that uh, I could see it a whole lot better. And uh, because of the type of vision loss I have, it's a result of multiple sclerosis. Um, I have uh, basically, it's called a contrast loss. So I like to see things in, in a very high contrast. So I learned how to flip the colors on the screen and uh, I, I managed to figure out how to leave the screen and, and uh, folks remember the old uh, word perfect screen. It was a, a blue screen with white writing. I learned how to create a, a one enlarged line and take that line and put yellow outlines on it and turn it black with yellow font. And it was just high contrast. And I was able to see my whole document However, I could manipulate one line at a time and make it large print so that I could blow it up while still seeing my whole document and, and keeping it um, formatted properly. It was really an amazing thing, and I loved it. I, I've been using Zoom text ever since, I think it was about 95, I was introduced, 95, 96. And I just really have love the prod pro, uh, program as the the one that i choose to use and and uh, it's on my screen now i i'm looking at it and uh, you know i have all those hot key strokes down so that i can manipulate my zoom text screen quickly and easily and and get through and and do what i need to do with it but some of the um basic stuff that i use um similar to uh, evelyn's sock rings um Color contrast is my thing. Um, I just put, uh, we, 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 we live on, in Virginia now, and we bought a, a dark brown table, which is great for me because anything you put down on it that's light, very easy to see. And I had a, a because it was wood, it was a mahogany wood, I had plastic covers that I kept on it so that it kept the wood look and and uh you know when i was doing my pills i could you know see my pills easily on the on you know the white pills or the pink pills on the dark brown and uh i just enlarged the table now i made it from round to oval so i put the leaf in it and uh they don't make a clear plastic cover for the table so i thought i would do good and find something that was dark brown well i found something with dark brown and it has these things that look like doilies laying, you know, they're, they're kind of, I, I guess, silk screened or however they do it onto the plastic cover. And the cover looks nice, but I'm learning that it's too busy for me to use because it's got these reds and pinks and yellows and it's just too busy. And, and I lost my pills on it this morning. <laughs> so I, ha I have to figure something else out. I'm going to probably find a dark surface that I can, um, a bowl or a plate or something that I can, you know, do that with and put it on the table and 
put my light colored pills into that dark surface so that I don't lose them on the table as I did this morning. I had to do that, uh, that hand search, you know, where you put your hand and kind of search around and try and find what you're missing. And uh, it's awful because the, the tablecloth has little wrinkles in it because it just does. And, and uh, it, it was tough on me this morning, but that I realized that this morning. So I'm going to have to address that rather quickly. Uh, when I'm out and about, I use a, a magnifier. I carry a handheld um, glass magnifier. It's um, just a little round. It's about one inch round and uh, it's seven X. It's got a three and a four. And uh, when they're together, it's a seven times multiplication. So um, I'm able to use that. And um, if folks don't realize um, for, for people with low vision, when, when you use um, higher magnification, the lens becomes much smaller. And um, because of the type of vision loss that I'm having, I have to hold the magnifier up to my eye and actually fill my whole eye with what I'm trying to read because um, the high contrast kind of fades as things, <coughs> oh, excuse me, as, as things get wider. So the wide, wider field of vision, the more it fades and, and the contrast goes down. So if you try to raise the contrast, you really have to, you know, bring things close to you and get real close to it in order to fill your whole eye with what you're trying to read. So when I'm trying to read something, I'm usually reading two or three letters at a time. Uh, you know, like I can't read a word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious all at the same time. <laughs> I have to go down the line of letters to try and figure out what it is. So sometimes I get a little confused and, and, you know, I get a little confused when it comes to like uh, elephant and eggplant. Uh, many times I, I won't, uh, you know, I'll see the EPH and there we go. <laughs> that says elephant or eggplant, depending on my context. So, you know, I, I tend to jump the gun a lot because I use that. But uh, the majority of stuff that I use uh, when I'm sitting around at my desk is the Zoom text. I have a desktop CCTV because those smaller CCTVs um, get a little busy when I'm trying to move them. If they're electronic, when I'm moving them, they get a little too busy for me. And, and I, the words I get lost. So uh, I, I, I don't like to use the electronic CCTVs, uh, the smaller ones. I like the big one and uh, I use it quite frequently on my desk and uh, I flip it around. I usually read with a dark background and, and white text to make it easier for me to see. I can go smaller. I don't have to go uh, as large as I have to go when I use a white background because light also reduces con contrast. So when, when I have too much light coming into my eyes, I, I just don't see it. And my vision loss is not my eyes. My vision loss is actually the optic nerves. So it, it, it can't be fixed. I can't wear sunglasses and say, oh, that's going to help because it just doesn't work. It just reduces my, my uh, vision more because it, it uh, reduces the contrast. And I need very, very high contrast when I'm and the yellow glasses tend to work some, but um, I don't like wearing the yellow glasses. I don't feel comfortable wearing them. And, and I just it, it, I haven't found them helpful enough to, you know, use them. Uh, the white cane I've, I've become adapted to because when I was traveling in New York City, I found that the white cane assisted me in, in many ways um, 
when I was getting on, on the bus and stuff and, and, and uh, the bus driver would, when I'd ask the bus driver, you know, excuse me, can you tell me the number of the bus? And the bus driver said, it's written on the front. You didn't see it. And I was like, no, I actually didn't see it. And when I started carrying a white cane, I used to look at the bus driver and say, oh, I'm legally blind. You didn't see the white cane. Uh, <laughs> so, and usually I got an apology and they would tell me what the number of the bus was, but uh Folks in New York City are not as nasty as one would think when they saw the white cane. Many people become more um, congenial and, and wanting to help you and, and think that you, you know, and uh, they, they would want to help you across the street. And, uh, you know, it was always a little tough, but uh, sometimes I would get, you know, grabbed and dragged across the street when I was waiting on a bus stop and miss my bus in the process. But it was things I learned how to live with and just, you know, thank people and be on my way. But uh, that, that uh, so I use a white cane. I use my magnifier, my little 7X magnifier. I use a lot of uh, white pads with uh, black dark magic markers. Um, the markers I choose are uh, called Visaviz. And uh, folks use them. Um, if you recall when you were in school, maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't, the overhead projectors with the water markers that, and uh, nowadays they would call them with the whiteboard, they're using those um, erasable markers that are water soluble. So if one of my pad gets wet, I usually have this big gray blur on my pad because uh, the markers are water soluble, but I find that the tips of the markers get compressed easily and uh, it makes the, the writing a little wider. When they're brand new, they're a little tough because they make a nice fine point that uh, is, is not really readable by me. But uh, one or two letters down the, down the line, they kind of smoosh down a little bit and give me a wide enough letter so that I can see it fairly easily. Um, worked my way through college with that stuff. And, um, you know, it was fairly easy. Um, well, I don't want to say it was easy. I mean, fairly easy to adjust to my vision loss, uh, because uh, when I was in college, um, I learned that coming from the sighted world into the blind world, um, I learned that I was able to use, um, books on tape and, uh, for a guy that didn't do so good in high school, when I was able to get books on tape, you know, cause I didn't like reading. I thought that was the best thing in the world. I was like, oh, that's going to be great. I'll be able to listen to my books. And, and uh, I, I got my first book on tape and I put it into the cassette player and I turned it on and 32 seconds later, I was out cold. So <laughs> I was sleeping and, and I was like, this is not going to work. So basically, we, we have a lot of access to a lot of technology that makes our lives easier. However, we have to learn how to use that technology that suits us best. Um, I learned that when I was reading for context, I had to sit at my desk in the upright position and actually uh, be cognizant, cognizant, cognizant of what I was reading and read every word for context, not sit there and listen to a book because if I listen to a book, I, I, I don't last very long. And uh, if I'm reading for, for uh, pleasure, sometimes it's a little easier, but I still have to be sitting in the upright position. I, I know that some folks 
my partner, Lori, uh, she uh, can lay there and read for hours. Me, uh, not so much <laughs> when we try to read together and, and uh, we'll kind of lay down and read a book. Uh, I'm usually snoring not long after we get started with the book. So um, that's some of the stuff that I use. Um, I like the larger screens. I get frustrated with the uh, voice a lot when we're um, trying to um, use my, my iPhone. I, use, I do use an iPhone, um, but I do get frustrated with the voice a lot because um, I usually have to see what I'm doing. And I prefer uh, when I'm trying to figure things out to pull out my trusty little magnifying glass and uh, put it up to my eye with the Mac, with the iPhone in hand, trying to see what it's saying rather than trying to listen to the voiceover uh, babble out what I'm trying to hear. Um, with that, I guess I'm going to turn it back to Bob and uh, let him do his thing and take questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike, uh, very much. Uh, it's appreciated. As Mike said, you can see one size doesn't fit all. And again, if it works for you, uh, do it. And if it doesn't, uh, don't. Uh, I will tell one story before I turn this over to questions. Um, up until 2012, uh, I did not use a white cane. And one day I was walking down the street in my community and there happened to be a clothing bazaar outside. And so there wasn't much space to walk. And uh, I uh, went to move out of someone who was coming the opposite way out of their way, give them way. And I bumped someone. And that person uh, got very annoyed. And uh, even after a, um, an apology, uh, tried to body slam me. Uh, at that point, uh, I decided both for identification purposes and maybe a little bit of mobility, it was time to get a cane. And getting the cane for me opened up a whole new world. Um, as Mike has suggested, um, people became a lot more solicitous, a lot more solicitous, blah, became very friendly. Um, and it was, it, it just was an eye opener to me to see how many people would stop and offer to cross me across streets or just to lend a hand. Um, best decision I ever made. Anyway, now I'd like to turn it over to you. You've been listening to us for about a half an hour, and I'd like to give you a chance to ask questions or share your own tips and tricks to add to the discussion. So I'm ready to take questions if uh, you folks will raise your hand and uh, we'll get going. Okay, <clears throat> I'm Lynn, I'm the host and we do have one question, but before uh, we get into questions, I just want to let everybody know how to raise your hands. On the computer, it is Alt-Y. On a Mac, it is Option-Y. On a landline, it is it is star nine, and on your iPhone, it is on the bottom of your home screen, sort of in the middle. Okay, so we do have one question. Roseanne, you may. Hi, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. 
Awesome. Um, I have always been a visual person most of my life and went through, you know, recently have gone through a lot of changes, changing from being visual to not as visual. And like Mike, I use Zoom text and do remember DOS and all those crazy things. Um, and now I've had to uh, gradually switch over to using JAWS, which has been a bit of a challenge. Um, my question actually is basically for Mike, if anybody else wants to answer it, that's fine. But Mike, you've gone through a monumental change, going from being sighted, being able to drive a car, work on cars and all that good stuff, to waking up one day and not being able to see. I can't even imagine in my wildest dreams what the psychological aspect of that is. How did you deal with that psychologically? How did you adjust from the night and day uh, thing that you went through and then came out as positive as you did? And you're awesome. It took some time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it took a long time. It took probably uh, about two years um, and uh, there were uh, quite a few changes in my life at the time, but um, it, it basically, it was a one day process. I, I, I woke up, um, there was something wrong with my eyes and I knew that. And I had an appointment with uh, an optoneurologist um, for a week following the day that it happened. Um, the day it happened was August 28th, 1992. Um, it's a, a date that sticks in my head very, very firmly. And I woke up, I could not see. Um, I, I, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do. I didn't know. I, I did manage to remember the pattern of the uh, touchtone telephone because I, I did have a landline at the time with a, um, if people recall those old uh, receivers with the, with the receiver that had the cord to it to the touch tone device <laughs> yeah, yeah the old-fashioned phone okay <laughs> <laughs> but i i did re recall the the uh, layout of the buttons and uh, i managed to uh call the doctor and uh, i called the doctor's office that i had the uh, appointment with and uh, they said, oh, you have an appointment next week. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You have to see me today. Uh, <laughs> no, well, you, you can come in next week. No, I can't see. And I, I need to see the doctor today. And I was told, well, you may have to wait. I said, well, that's fine. I'll wait. But, uh, you know, I need to see the doctor that day. And uh, she diagnosed me uh, that day with multiple sclerosis and uh, did confirm. It was confirmed later on. That, that was, and uh, she was uh, a little drink of water. I, I can recall her being not, not very, very uh, big. And uh, she kind of whispered in my ear, uh, you know, it won't kill you, but it will mess with you your whole life. And uh, I said, okay, uh, what do I do? And she said, well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe your vision will come back. Um, not knowing at the time, she probably should have put me on steroids, um, but I didn't have a general practitioner. I was all by myself. I really had nobody I could rely on, and uh, I, I needed to get back to a support system. So my, my main objective um, in Arizona at that point in time was getting back to New York. 
Um, I gave away many of my belongings. One was my my dog. Excuse uh, me, Mike. Yes. I'm just going to ask uh, the host to mute, I think, Rosanna, so that you can speak without stuff in the background. I'm sorry. I didn't hear it. Oh, I didn't even hear that stuff. Sorry. Um, so I, I, uh, I kind of um, gave away much of what I had at that point. Uh, packed up my tools and found somebody that I could hitch a ride with to Las Vegas where my dad um, had a home. I, I unloaded my tools, which was um, really tough on me and uh, gave away my dog. And uh, so I was dealing with a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, when I got back to New York, finally, I, I didn't have tools. So I had to give up that I didn't have my dog. I had to give up that I didn't have my vision. I had to give up that. And fortunately I had a brother that was doing okay. And, and he gave me a bedroom and said, uh, you know, you can stay here as long as you need. And, and, uh, I did. And I dealt with uh, much of my life at that point, uh, watching Oprah. And about two years in, I decided I needed to do something more than, than sit here and watch Oprah during the day. And I went back to school. And when I went back to school, a couple of little ins and outs, and I met a, a wonderful person named Laurie Schaff, who kind of introduced me to blindness and, and uh, allowed me to uh, learn my way and assisted me in learning my way. So there, there was a lot I was dealing with psychologically, emotionally, um, educationally, because I, I didn't know what I could do. You know, I, I, I went to uh, the VR agency and uh, they said, well, what do you want to do? I was like, look, I don't even know what I can do, much less what I want to do. So it was really my whole life was turned upside down in, in a day. And I had to deal with it. And it took about two years. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh, Rosanna, did that answer your question? I'm sorry, I, I muted her. I, I okay. apologize. No, I asked you to. So. All right. We do have another question. Uh, phone number ending in 901. Could you please unmute again, please? Uh, try if there you go. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if I was on. No, what I was going to. Um... Okay. I can hear you, ma'am. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. What I was going to say to Bob, you know, because I really like him and Mary Ellen, and but I think I think you're doing it the hard way with the uh, socks, you know, with the uh, things there, because my doctor white socks, and I got white socks for the cotton ones, and uh, that could avoid, you know, we have to put those those rings on them and everything, because you know, because I got the white cotton socks, and uh, I think that's a lot easier. Uh, my answer to that, Sal, is that one size does not fit all. And if whatever works for you works for you, uh, that's the way to go. Excuse me. I'm on Sal's line. When can I ask a question? I mean, uh, you, make a comment. You can go ahead right now, Maureen. Okay. I have a suggestion for Mike with his uh, tablecloth. My suggestion is a black material napkin. You can get them in bed and bath or I don't know where, but or something like a black um, shelf lining to put a piece of it on the table 
And I think that that would give you the contrast that you need to be able to see things because it's a solid black. Okay, thanks, Maureen. Um, do we have any other questions out there? Okay. Um, I have you one. Self, pal. Okay. okay. Um, it's Kathy. Um, I wonder if Mike, if you could kind of um, answer this one. If you came across somebody who was in the same position you were in in 1992, you know, having just lost their vision, what's one thing that you would tell them that might help this situation? That's really, really a tough question because, I mean, I've learned that we all go through different emotions and and levels of i you know being involved with acb i I'm, i've met folks with low vision and uh, you know they don't want to be declared legally blind because you know that means they're going to take away these and they hold up their car keys so you know that person is not ready to learn some of the other stuff that that goes along with the vision loss and and it's really tough but uh i i share you know my stories and and explain that you know sometimes it's it's not so bad and we we have to you know get along but we have to first determine where that person is um with their vision loss because we we all go through so much stuff and so quickly and uh, you know it's always better to know it's going to get better but sometimes just reassuring folks that it's someday it's going to get better and, and, uh, and leave it be. And other times folks are ready to start learning the path. I don't know if that answered your question, but hopefully it was helpful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Mike. I was going to suggest a placemat, you know, get a, a whatever color works for you, darker color placemat and put it on your table where you're working. Thank that you. Might help. Yeah, thanks. It's just, it happened this morning and I realized I needed to do something, you know, in addition to, because I put the tablecloth on yesterday. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. I use placemats sometimes to, or a tray that you can put whatever That's pills what are on. So they don't suggest. Mm -hmm. Do we have a, another question out there? I, I do not. Okay. Well, I do not. Oh, wait, I do. Okay, now okay. we have a raised hand. <sighs> okay. Okay. Okay, Yasmin, you can unmute. Okay, Yasmin, welcome. Yasmin, can you... Okay, I asked her to. Okay, there we go. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to, um, I guess, like make a comment. Um, I am someone who's um, like I, in the middle of like losing my vision. So I'm like at the halfway point. So I'm still, you know, have some vision. But I noticed that like over the last like two years, it's definitely has um, been a struggle. 
struggle because I have a young child, a school age child. And I was just, come, you know, trying to figure out how was I going to be able to still, you know, help him with school and, you know, being able to, um, you know, communicate any kind of needs with my son's school at the time. And it was really difficult because um, I believe at that time they did not have anybody or any child with a disability at the school. So I already knew that it was going to be, you know, some issues there. So, um, and I realized that my son was having, you know, a hard time adjusting to seeing the cane. Like he was just so embarrassed by it. And he would, you know, when I come pick him up from school, he always would tell me to put, you know, put it away. And I really had to explain to him that, you know, you don't want me falling out here in the street in front of the school. You know, this is junior high. So where, you know, opinions, opinions matter. And God forbid, you know, I would have had an accident in front of his school. You know, we probably would have had to change schools. But, um, you know, I think that I'm, I'm definitely grateful that I, um, you know, found, you know, ACB and like the Lighthouse Guild because they were able to help me you know, uh, like rein in those emotions and, you know, figure out how I could still function, um, you know, as an adult and also as a parent. And I also did go through that with trying to figure out if I could still be able to work because like, like I said, my vision has been declining for, you know, a few years now, but I was still able to work, but I was able to try last year, like an internship where they knew that, you know, these, you know, these candidates have, you know, certain kinds of uh, visual impairments and it was at an eye hospital. So, you know, that kind of made things easier. And, you know, it was, it was a great experience. And I just wanted to say, um, I did look, you know, look up your organization and, you know, hoping to get more information in the future. Thank you. Uh, okay. Okay, yeah. Jasmine. Uh, Jasmine, yeah. thank you. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, this is Mike, and it, it's always good to know your rights as a parent who's visually impaired. Um, and there are a lot of things that the school, I, you know, I, you said junior high, I'm assuming he's still in junior high or she, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good. You have rights and the school needs to accommodate you to some level, in addition to, um, you know, making things right, because um, you, it's still your son. Oh, your daughter, it's your child. And you need to be able to provide the services as a parent to your, your child. And the school needs to make sure that you can read the note that they send home or that you, you know, get invited to the meeting within a format that you can fully understand and, and access, you know, if they send a note, just stick a note and tell, tell the kid, you know, here, take this note home, give it to your parents. And it's in print. It, it means nothing to you if you can't see it. So you do have rights and, and the school needs to make accommodations to you and getting to know folks within ACBNY will allow you to learn what those rights are and make sure that you can um, raise your child to the best um, extent possible. Um, I did raise a daughter. Um, she spent a great deal of time with me. Um, when I was first diagnosed, uh, only because I was sitting home watching Oprah. Uh, in, in addition to Oprah, I watched a lot of Barney at the time. Uh, Barney was uh, the, the 
common kids show, but uh, she did sit on my lap and we read books under the CCTV. So, uh, you know, she got used to it. But uh, one of the things that I stressed with her extently, I, I, you know, constantly said, when I say your name, I don't want to hear you say to me, I'm over here, I'm over there, I'm, you know, behind a tree, I want you to stand next to me and say, I'm right here, dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I would lose her because I would participate. I would, you know, do those school trips and, and whatever I could. And, uh, you know, when, when she got into a crowd of children, I couldn't identify her. I couldn't identify my own child in a crowd of children. So it was really critical that she knew that when I called her name, I wanted her standing next to me. Okay, we do have uh, one. Can uh, I just, can I respond to, to Yasmin? Uh, um, I think two organizations that might be helpful for you if you're not already involved is uh, um, ACB Families uh, is a good organization because that's, you know, parents of, um, parents of, uh, who have children who are visually impaired and vice versa. Um, you might want to investigate that. And then of course, um, you know, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International and of course uh, New York State Council of Citizens with Low Vision is an affiliate of that and it's an affiliate of ACBNY. So, you know, we can all help you. Uh, all right. Did that help, Jasmine? Jasmine? Yes, it did. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for your question. Um, we have another question, do we? Yes. Yes, we do. Roger okay. Dennis, you may unmute. Hi, uh, I'm Roger Dennis from Rochester. Um, in the mid seventies, uh, I started to see little spots in front of my eyes when I was driving home from working second shift at uh, Eastman Kodak. And so I went to the Kodak doctor <laughs> and the next day I was at a neurologist. The next day I was having a CAT scan. They thought I had a brain tumor, which I did not have, but I did lose about 85, 90% of my vision over the next six weeks. And um, so I was out of work. Um, I, my wife and I remember dearly being in that neurologist's office and say, he's telling us that, you know, things may not get much better than they are right now. And our tears flowed and we left. But um, a couple of things I can say to people is one, if you do en enter back into the workforce, which I did, do your best to take solutions because the people don't appreciate what you're going through. So don't whine and say, I need this. Tell them, I would like to have this and give them a solution to your problem. You'll find it'll work much, much better. And you'll gain a lot more respect as you go through the workforce. Um, and you can get, get those that help for that uh, many ways from, uh, you know, ABVI here in Rochester or the commission or wherever it might be, or the organizations, but, you really need to be respected in the workplace. And by do it, by bringing solutions to help you, you'll get that respect. And I worked for 34 years at Kodak before it and I both quit. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Roger. Uh, appreciate that. Um, hey, hey, Bob, this is Annie. We have uh, just about five minutes, I think. It's okay. coming up on 12.10, and we're going to be ending at 12.15. Uh, so I just wanted to give you uh, a heads up. Actually, I've been watching the old watch. Uh, are there any other questions out there? Uh, Zanny, I don't have a question, but I have a comment. When, when oh. Mike was talking about 
um, letting his daughter know, you know, what he expected in terms of when he asked, you know, uh, where are you? He didn't want to hear the I'm over here thing. And um, when my kids were little and I would put out my hand and I would say, let me see it. They knew let me see it meant put it in my hand. Let me touch it. <laughs> so that was always something that it was kind of like we, we did as a game, you know, um, and to this day, I still say, let me see it and hold out my hand. And my family automatically puts it in my hand or, you know, brings me over. And it's just funny how things sometimes uh, we just, uh, you know, do stuff like that in our everyday lives. And uh, our kids pick right up on it. And it's no big deal for them. And, and, now, and now you say touch. Yeah, well, with the dog, <laughs> yeah. The canines are trained better than the people. <laughs> um, and I, I think we've, we've found, again, that one size does, doesn't fit all. And the other thing is sometimes simple solutions. Uh, I mean, I love my CCTV and, and the computer stuff that I have. But sometimes the simple solutions are simple requests can have a profound effect, uh, whether it's uh, um, reading with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, whether it's using paper with large lines or magic markers, you know. Um, but I would like to uh, kind of wrap up. And before I do, does any of the panel have any final thoughts they'd like to share? I don't want to monopolize, but uh, I just want to share a little story from an old time mentor. And uh, he was uh, Paul Sowerland. He uh, always carried a, a, a means of taking notes. This was an, an old time Braille user, and he always had a slate and stylus with a piece of paper, a little index card in his top pocket, because he uh, always said, you need to have a way of writing something down quickly. And he always had that slate and stylus in his pocket. Okay. Very good, Mike. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, Annie, and is it Debbie that's worked as the host? No, Lynn, Lynn was the host, yes? Yes, yes. Okay. I'd like to thank both of you uh, for your assistance. I'd like to thank the folks on the panel, those who were listening. I hope you found something here. And if you don't, uh, sometimes, again, the simple solutions work. Um, and hopefully you'll find them. And uh, again, thanks a lot. And I think at this point, we'll bring this session to a close. Thank Bob. you, Bob. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Uh, Lynn, do you Thank have you. any, any, you're welcome. You have any last minute things you need to say, Lynn? Uh, no, I was just going to say that uh, for Mike, who's having issues with finding pills, um, you can get these serving trays at uh, like Smart and Final or stores like that. They're like trays you'd find in a cafeteria and you can put that on your table. And what, ha what happens is anything that falls is contained in the tray. Thank you so much. I happen to have a black one. It's actually metal, so you can use magnets on it, too. Cool. <laughs> there you go. Hey, Bob. Uh, Bob. Oh, oh, yes, I'm unmuted. Go ahead. You, you might want to tell people how they can get involved with NYSCCLV. Actually, that's a good idea. Uh, you can uh, 
email me at C H A R C R O seven zero one one at V E R I Z O N dot N E T, or you can call me at area code five one six three seven four six zero zero eight and kathy do you want to uh tell them about the national resource in case there are folks outside of new york state yes uh the national organization is called council of citizens with low vision international we do have a website which is uh, www.cclvi.org and if you go to that website you'll see um a calendar of events. You'll see how to subscribe to our um, announce list. You'll see our uh, 800 number, which I don't have in front of me at the moment, but it is on the website. So cclvi.org. And that's our, we're a special interest affiliate of ACB. And, um, you know, we'd be happy to have you. Okay. That's great, Kathy. Thanks. I think we're at our uh, limit. Uh, yes. So thanks for those who listening in, listened in. I hope you found something useful. Have a great day. Okay. That concludes our session with um, the New York State Council on Citizens with Low Vision. Uh, we're going to take a short break, I believe, and then we're going to be coming back with a um, at twelve thirty with the session for the Randolph Shepherd Vendors. Uh, um, presentation um, with uh, President Karen um, and uh, Chapter President Alex Meister and guests. So stay tuned.